This Week in Sparkling Water, episode whatever. My name is Iwa Kameakson, and I'm your host. I pressed record just now, and I started recording, and I I couldn't say anything, because my thoughts are all jumbled. And then I stopped and started over, but I didn't actually pause to unjumble my thoughts between takes. And I'm realizing that that's a mistake, but I'm just going to go in. So I'm going to, let's just talk about the last 48 hours. So first of all, I think I have to just really go back again for the 10th time and talk about this thing, like my, my villain origin story. I think my villain origin story is that um, my dad's an alcoholic, but the problem isn't that he, he's an alcoholic, the problem is that he's lonely and I'm afraid of becoming like him. I'm not afraid of the alcoholism as much as I'm afraid of the loneliness. And what I'm realizing is, what I realized sitting in the car just now is that my whole life I've had this, or no, for years now, ever since I sort of started realizing that that's like really what it is, it's like my dad has just the most, a life that I'm so terrified of. And I am so, there's so many things that have emotionally made me believe that I'm, I run a very high risk of becoming like him. Um, there's always been a thing as, as, as soon as I could say that out loud and verbalize that, I was always, confronted with friends and family and therapists. I feel like my S's are coming through really sharp and hard and weird, but we're just going to go with it. Um, I was always confronted with people who would be like, that's tough that you think you're going to become like your dad. And I understand that you emotionally believe that. Like on some subconscious level, the part of your brain that you can't control believes that. Like that's a fear. Like you fear that. And you can't control your fear, but like rationally, you know that you are not your dad and you are not like your dad and you're not going to become your dad or end up like your dad. Like, you know that though. And what I'm, the truth though is that no, I don't. (laughs) The truth is that I'm like in a very sort of active I had this one therapist, I can't even remember which one. I think it's Dr. Huber. He would he would push me always to not think back too far back and instead think about like, think about this week and think about what's, he called it active matter. Just like stuff that's active in your brain, stuff that hurts right now. Like think about that stuff. And right now in this moment, like that's stuff that actually hurts right now. Like I'm actually terrified of becoming like my dad. Not right now. And I actually believe that that's sort of true. And it's, it's like, um, <clears throat> my, my uncle bought me a ticket to Mexico and he has a timeshare in Mexico. And he, he was like, I'm going to buy you, I'm going to buy you a ticket. And he gave me the dates and the dates were like over my birthday. And I was like, do you know, that's my birthday. Is this for my birthday? And he had no idea what my birthday is because he's a piece of shit. He just accidentally, I shouldn't call him a piece of shit in the same sentence as saying that he's buying me a ticket. (laughs) Okay. He's a good guy. 
but he does not know when my birthday is. He's a mess. He's a good guy and he's a mess. Um, so then when the trip is coming up, I like called my mom and I was like, I should call my dad when I was like the day before I was leaving to go see my uncle. I was like, I should call my dad because it's just nice to have something to say to my dad that he can understand. Because if I'm just calling my dad and talking about my fucking work and he has no idea what my job is, it's all going to be so alienating and so like, we're just going to feel so disconnected. But if I can call him and just be like, yeah, I'm going to see, I'm going to see Uncle Dan, you know, I'm going to see Uncle Dan tomorrow. How are you doing? Then it, it can be like, it's as if we have a context. It's as if we have a relationship. Like if I can just make this, if I can just give the small talk, the texture and feeling and the exterior, like if I can, if the small talk can have an exterior of seeming real and personal and and well-functioning, if the small talk can just seem like it sounds good, then I think that he doesn't need more than that. I think that's just better for him. Because then I can sort of convince him that we have a relationship and that it's good. And then he can be happy and then I can chill the fuck out and not worry about how he's doing and how I'm like not a good son. So I was calling my mom and I was calling him and I texted him and I was like, can we... I texted him and was like, can we... Um, uh, I texted him and was like, can we talk? And I texted him on WhatsApp. And... Here's a feeling. <laughs> oh, God. Here's a bad feeling. Here's a bad feeling for you. This one time. So I've been talking to my dad on WhatsApp for years, right? But I talked to him once a year. And then when I was in Sweden about 15, 16 months ago, I was helping him with his phone because he, he was like, WhatsApp isn't working very well. And I go into his WhatsApp and I can tell that he only has one contact on there and it's me. And I message him once a year. So he has an app that's only for talking to me, and he never uses it. Like, there's something about the techno-sadness of that that's like, oh, really sort of like cinches up my fucking aorta and just kills me. It's There's something really bad about that. But I am a person who's always pushing people to get WhatsApp, so I think it's actually true that a lot of people have WhatsApp just to talk to me because I've pushed them a lot. And this one time I saw that on Maddie's phone, I was like, I made her get WhatsApp and then she didn't have anyone else. And Dr. Luke would always tell me like, I'm un uninstalling WhatsApp because you're a piece of shit and I don't have anyone else on WhatsApp. So fuck this, friendship over, goodbye. And he would uninstall WhatsApp and then we wouldn't be friends anymore for a few months. And then he'd reinstall it and we'd be friends again. So that's like a bunch of fucking sad shit right there. I don't know if I'm communicating how sad all that makes me, but it makes me like, why does it make me so sad to think that someone gets an app just to talk to me? It makes me extremely sad. Anyway, so I was trying to talk to my my dad, and I messaged him on WhatsApp, and he didn't call me back, but my mom called me back shortly thereafter, like six hours later or something. And then I missed it, but two hours later I saw it, and I called her back, and it was like 1 p.m. in Sweden. No, it was 1 p.m. here, so it was like 10 p.m. in Sweden. So she had just gone to bed, so she picked up, and it's a video call, and it's all dark. And I was like, oh, fuck, you were trying to sleep. I'm sorry. 
And I, I just go like, oh, I thought you, you just called me, and I thought like maybe my dad was there, and he was trying to call you from your, call me from your phone, because he's kind of like too broken of an alcoholic to use his phone, so he has to like he will call me from like my sister's phone or my mom's phone or whatever. Like my parents have been divorced for twenty years, but sometimes he'll walk, and he doesn't have a driver's license because he's an alcoholic. So sometimes he'll walk to my mom's house just to make a phone call to me uh it's so sad uh such a sad life such a small it's like sad is it's too much of a catch-all term i have to drink something my s's are coming out too hard sad is too weird of a term it's more the smallness of it is kills me it's like he lives such a small life he just yeah he doesn't do anything. But anyway, so I call my mom and then it's like 10 p.m. And I'm like, oh, I thought my I thought maybe it was my dad trying to call me through your phone. And she was like, oh, yeah, no, no, it, it wasn't me. I, it wasn't him. I was just trying to call you. And then she's like, yeah, yeah no, I never see him after 6 p.m. Like, like, you know that. Like, like, we never call him after 6 p.m. I never talk to him. I never, if he calls me after 6 p.m., I don't pick up. And she doesn't, like, say why. She's just like, but the why is because, like, after 6 p.m., the odds of him being, like, too wasted for it to be, like, a good experience, the odds are too high. So, like, at some point, she just developed this rule, her and my sister. It's just, like, this rule, like, after 6, it's just like, no. Don't, if he calls, don't pick up. If you need something from him, don't call him. Call him in the morning, you know. You can talk to him midday. Call him around noon, you know. Um, alcoholism. And, um, oh, God. I'm having such a like, disembodied, horrible experience right now. <sighs> okay, so. That's the one thing. And then she says this thing of like, he's actually been good for a while. She never says the word alcoholism. She never says the word wasted. She never says sobriety. She never says drunk. She never says anything. She just says 6 p.m. I don't talk to him after 6 p.m. And then she says, well, you know, like as of late, he's been good. And it's like that, that means that he's like been not drinking or drinking less or not drinking at all, but probably drinking sometimes, but not drinking very much or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, good, good, okay, yeah, good. And it's like, we don't talk about it, and we don't talk about it directly. And then, um, yeah. So, I'm, I am, it, for some reason, it's been kind of a while. It's been almost like a year and a half or something of me living with this belief that my dad is not drinking at all anymore, which is probably not true. He probably drinks sometimes, but, but it just, I've been living with this belief that he's doing better in terms of sobriety. So it was just, for some reason, it really like weighed really heavy on me to hear her say that, that there's still like these, I don't know. I mean, it's a thing we talk about in AA all the time, how like, you can sober up and you can tell your family that you're going to be sober now and you can like do be way better and you can be like sober for two weeks and you can tell them like, look, I've been sober for two weeks. Like, why do you still treat me like I'm going to fucking show up all wasted all of a sudden? But it's like, here's the thing. It might take your family like 10 years before they start believing that you're going to be sober now. So like if my dad's been sober for two, three years, 
or sober-ish. It's like my mom hasn't even started uninstalling the guardrails. And it's like those guardrails are built on this like very, very well-made foundation of pain. Like handcrafted, slow-roasted pain, you know? Stuff that was built over like decades of of a of a mostly failing marriage. So anyway, yeah, I mean the the thing is I've talked about this so many times on my podcast, but look, the podcast is self therapy and this is what I need to talk about. The thing is that I still just rationally believe that I am more than 50% probable probable to end up exactly like my dad. It's what I believe because he used to be good when she was good. Is that a book by Philip Roth? <laughs> I feel like that's either a book by Philip Roth or it's a made-up book in an episode of Girls where Lena Dunham talks to like a Philip Roth-esque character with a bunch of made-up novels when she was good. My dad used to be good when he was good. Uh, if I write a book about my dad, it'll be like... Uh, Honestly, my book is about my dad, so it'll just be what it is. But anyway, my dad was good. Like, he grew up, and he was kind of a fucked up teenager, but he was chilling, and he had friends, and and he was wasted, but he had friends. And it's the loneliness that I'm afraid of. And I, I know that he did amphetamines and LSD, and he smoked hash, because those were the drugs that were available in Sweden in the 70s and the 80s, in the fucking working class harbor quarters of Malmo. Those are the things they got in on the boat, you know, from fucking Lithuania. Fucking hash from the Middle East. Diluted with fucking car tires. So um, he was good and then he was partying and he had friends. And, and, and I know that because I've seen him like glassy-eyed and wasted and not present. And him just saying things that don't make any sense where he's telling stories and talking as if he's talking to his friends and he'll use their names and I've never met these people but he'll use their names in a wasted when he's wasted he'll just talk and he'll use their names Yari I can't even remember there are other names there's one the most common name maybe it'll come to me at some point in this episode the name of his best friend that he probably the guy is probably alive you know the guy is probably alive and the guy is probably knows that my dad is like a fucked up guy who's in pain and he probably just decides not to think about my dad because it's just not a good like my dad probably did a bunch of fucked up shit over a long time and he just had to cut him out of his life he just like couldn't my dad never grew up is probably the narrative you know that guy probably thinks of my dad as like the guy who just couldn't fucking get his shit together and he just like, he just stayed bad after, it wasn't fun anymore. And he wouldn't stop. And that's like, 
the guy is probably alive and he probably has, he's probably not divorced and he probably has three kids and he probably owns his house and he probably lives a chill life. And in his 20s, he had fun with my dad and they were friends. And in his 20s, my dad had fun with him. And that's the thing. Like, I know people who will grow up to own their houses and have three kids and just live chill lives. And I am afraid that they will think back on me as like one of these guys that just couldn't stop when it wasn't funny anymore. And like there was a time when we couldn't tell the difference. We couldn't tell which ones were going to be, which ones were going to be homeless and which ones were going to be professionals and which ones were just going to be like have a career and who was going to just do live, spend the rest of their lives in transitional housing, you know? So, yeah. So my dad was good in his 20s and then his 30s. I think the day I was born, honestly, is like, the beginning or the end or the middle of the decline. Because it's like, the family, like he couldn't do that. He couldn't do that transition from just partying with people in his 20s to being a family guy with kids who like stays home and chills the fuck out. Because he just had to get wasted and then I was born and then my mom and blah, blah, blah. I've talked about it so many times on my podcast. But the point is that like, he just became this guy who failed at it all and it's the loneliness. He became so lonely and his life became so small. The most inexact term that doesn't matter is the alcoholism. And then the more precise but still quite inexact term that matters, just medium matters, is the loneliness. And then the thing that really matters, that's the real exact term, is the smallness. The thing I'm really afraid of, it's the smallness. Like having that extremely small life where your whole life is lived in a square that can be chalked out on the floor and it's like it's like 13 feet by 13 feet and that's your entire life and there's like a little spot in the corner where you sleep and a little spot in another corner where you where you pee and another spot in the third corner where you eat and then the fourth corner is like a small tv and a couch and that's where you watch tv and it's like my dad never leaves his apartment he just watches tv and, you know, I've been thinking about this, how we shit on technology and we shit on the progression of technology and we shit on all these new generations of technology of like TikTok and our phones and we're just looking at our phones and we're so atomized and so disconnected from each other and we're on fucking Instagram and our attention spans are destroyed and we can't even watch a movie anymore and there's this video games and video games are so vapid and... You know, we shit on all these new types of internet, VR, metaverse. The metaverse is so dystopian because we escape into the dystopian fucking VR headset Mark Zuckerberg world when just because the world in the real world is like destroyed. We destroyed the environment. So now we're going to let Zuckerberg sell us a $600 headset and we put it on and it's like a metaverse full of advertisement. And that's so dystopian. But you know what's the worst technology? TV. TV is worse than all of that because TV is so passive. Like there's nothing sadder. I will rather sit with a VR headset where I'm swimming in a VR world through just an ocean of advertisements and just seven second videos. I would rather do that. I would rather just play video games all day or watch TikTok where at least I'm... TikTok is really the nightmare though, but like... TV is the worst 
because it's so passive. I mean, in a way, TikTok and TV is the same because it's just you don't do anything. You just consume. And all you can do, all you have is a next button. All you can just do is you can flip the channels up and down. Or on TikTok, you can just go next. And it's like the passiveness, like loneliness and passiveness and the consumingness, consuming other people's, just consuming friendship on a screen, just watching TV shows of friendship and you sit there for decades and, and you never leave your house. It's like, I would rather do any other, I wouldn't rather be a slave to any other technology. Anyway, that's just where I'm coming from. And one of the reasons why it's so hard to not be convinced that it'll always end up like that is because my dad has all these siblings. And it's like, they all chose these like extremely different paths. Like my dad just has a learning disorder and couldn't finish seventh grade and just was trying to work in an office and just could never figure out any job and just had crippling social phobia and just became like this completely lonely alcoholic with the smallest life. And then he has his, his oldest brother. It's like, I don't know what kind of schooling he did, but he ended up in some sort of corporation where they do landscaping and construction. And he just had a really good career there where he, yeah, I don't know. But the point is that like the older brother, oldest brother, he, first of all, there's this sad angle of like, he's never had a romantic relationship. So everyone's like, what's the deal? You know, like what? Is there something there where, like, you couldn't tell us? I don't know. Everything is so subdued. <sighs> I know that in a million years, like, if this guy had something going on where he had a boyfriend, like, there is not in a million years could that be said. And even if it was said, it could never be reset. Like, it's, it's like a thousand, I don't know. Oh, God, I just came up with the weirdest metaphor for what it's like. And it's like such a stupid metaphor. And it's so inexplicable. And it's, it's about like, yeah, anyway, the unsinkingness of the unsinkability of the Titanic and how there's a thousand compartments. And it's like, that's what it that's how unsayable it is. Where like, even if you breach through one mental block of how you would be able to say, something about what's going on with you so that your family can get to know you. Even if you broke through this like impenetrable block that you will never break through beyond it, you will find 1000 more unbreakable mental blocks. But anyway, I wasn't even going to talk about how that's the, that's like a sort of sad seeming angle of oldest brother's life, but it's more like the guy went on like a thousand golfing trips to nor different places in the UK and and he ended up with this he he had this nice he was re always renting this nice penthouse in Malmo this big apartment on the top floor and it had like these wooden beams all over the ceiling and these all these cool angles and stuff in the ceiling with all these exposed wood beams going everywhere and 
all the beams had whiskey bottles on them, full and empty whiskey bottles, because he had this like collection of like two, three, four hundred expensive whiskeys. And like, I don't know what his, I don't, I know he's the most enigmatic of the siblings. I don't know what his problem is. And he is the most closed off. Because you can't open up a little bit. If you have a big secret that you're saving, you cannot, the fear, you have to be completely closed. Because if you open up a little bit about something, then that's, terrifying so he's just completely closed off and i don't know what his drinking problem is but i just know that i've seen him wasted many times and i know that he has 200 bottles of whiskey in his at his house and that's not the i don't know if he has a i don't know if he has a drinking problem but that's not the path of the sober man i can tell you that and then like there's this sister my dad's sister and it just makes me sad because she, she has like health problems and she's the one who like really took care of herself and she always went to the gym and and there's all this stuff but like she's the one who like really tried to to address her issues and and she's the most you know she's my favorite because she's like me and she just wants to like talk about it openly and you know she was like a therapist and tried to like do stuff but then it didn't work the body kept the score, you know? The body kept the score, and now she's in a wheelchair. Because the body kept the score. She can't stand up for more than 30 seconds. Because the body keeps the score. And then, so that's, then the last sibling is my uncle, Uncle Dan, who chose this completely other path of going to America and just running away from everything. And in a way, like on a surface level, he's the most like me because he just like said fuck it and wanted, like thought everything was so shitty. And he really felt like him and me really agree on this thing of like, it's so fucking depressing in Sweden. And then when you, if you can just fucking settle in California and it, it just, it's warm outside and you can just chill the fuck out and Whatever happens, at least you're there where everything is like the backdrop of a movie. Everything is where the fancy people want to be. At least you're in California, you know? And like you look out the window and there are like rolling, beautiful, golden hills. So the last 48 hours, what happened, like what I wanted to say about all of that is sort of that. Nah, I don't know how to say it yet. But last 48 hours is that it's my, my birthday is tomorrow, so... Maddie came over and brought me some food and brought me a gift and was really nice and and we were hanging out and then it was kind of too late for her to go home even though I go to bed at 4:30 a.m. every night and she goes to bed at 11:30 p.m. and at midnight she's like I'm too tired to drive home and she's like can I sleep here and I was like yeah you can sleep here but it kind of means that I can't sit up for 4 hours and play video games though <laughs> And then I just decided not to be bitter and not decided not to be a piece of shit. And I just decided to be like, maybe it's good that I go to bed at midnight. You know, I'm going to hang out with my uncle. I'm going to have to... My whole life, actually, I've always dealt with this thing where when I go visit family, there's some really jarring resetting of a physiological thing. And it used to always be that I would be like drinking or smoking weed every day. And then when I go and hang out with my family, I can't drink and smoke weed. 
I can have maybe like a beer, but I can't smoke weed. And whatever it is, it's like, I'm trying to hang out with my family and be positive, but secretly I'm like going through massive withdrawal or whatever. And it just makes you so cranky and makes everything so horrible. And it's like, I'm never, I never get to just be with my family in a way where I get to feel like myself the way I normally feel. So the only remaining thing, now that I'm sober, the only remaining thing is that I go to hang out with my uncle and my thing is that I stay up until 4 a.m. Because I have a night job, you know? I work the fucking night shift, you know? You work a nine to five, so so I'll take the night shift and I'll never see you again. <laughs> that's a that's for all my Lucy Dacus heads. Anyway, so I was like, maybe I can start resetting my circadian rhythm right now, right here. And Maddie goes to bed at midnight and I can go to bed at midnight and I can get halfway good and then when I hang out with my uncle, I'll go to bed at a reasonable time and we can just hang out and it can be kind of positive. So I fucking hit it, take a bunch of NyQuil and I fall asleep at like 1 a.m. and then she wakes up at 6 a.m. and she woke me up and I couldn't fall back asleep and I almost slept five hours and I was so tired all that day but I played video games and it was fine and I was like, I'll just be tired today and I'll play video games and then I'll drive down to the bay and sleep at my uncle's house tonight and then tomorrow we're going to go to the airport at 6.30 a.m. and we're going to fly to Mexico and it's just going to be good because like if I'm really tired today, it means I can go to bed early. That This is what I'm thinking yesterday or whatever. The days are, this is what I'm thinking one of these days. I don't know which day it is then and I don't know which day it is now, Okay. It has all, the center could not hold, and it has fallen apart, and we don't exactly know where, we're, where we are on the timeline right now, but it's fine. The point is that I had a tired day, and then shit started to fall apart, and it was like this. I, it started so nice, like, I played some video games, I was real tired, but I was feeling good. I had, like, a, a coffee and a half, not too much, and then, like, at 2 p.m. or 1.30 or something, I leave the house... And I decide to do this like scenic route to 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 his house in San Francisco. And I, for once, I have this weird, I've always had these weird fictions in my head about how it works with America and geographics and roads and cars. The oldest and most classic one being when I first arrived in America, I went to Chicago and visited Carl Krauss. And then we took the train to um, Gary, Indiana. And we saw these like bombed out weird ghettos in Gary, Indiana with like gang members posted up on the corners. And I was walking around there really wanting a, a, a nice pastry, like a nice flaky crust, airy, well-made, like fresh out of the oven, like a Danish or a croissant or something. And I kept being like, I kept telling Carl, like, if we just walk, like, if we just walk that way and turn the corner, can we just check if there's like a bakery or something with like a nice, and he's like, bro. Bro, we're going to get shot. There is no pastries. And I couldn't get it through my stupid, thick Swedish skull that there weren't going to be any flaky pastries in Gary, Indiana. So we – I and but the thing is that he humored me and we walked for hours throughout like the bombed out wasteland of, of you know, opioid epidemic America. <sighs> and now – so that's an old fiction I have in my head. And then the new fiction is I'm always I'm always driving the same route. 
they, these fictions are informed by experiences I've had. Like I used to live in China. You were if you walk a block and a half from any point in any direction, you're always going to run into a Paris baguette or uh, some other bakery shop and there's a lot of pitfalls you have to learn a lot about it and not everything in that bakery is good but there's some good shit in there you can get an iced coffee and you can get a flaky pastry and there's some good shit in there uh, there's a lot of fucking pitfalls like a lot of things is filled with beans like you bite into a flaky pastry and it's filled with beans so you got to know about you know or peas green pea fucking paste green pea paste in a in a fold over you know you don't want that, but you got to learn. So I have like this compass of how I know how to find a bakery and I know how to find the good pastry in the bakery. But then he plopped me down in America and I just, all my my assumptions turn out to be wrong. And then the other assumption is that I'm always commuting the same route. And when I'm bored of my route, I just feel like, what if we go one street over and just travel parallel to the normal route? And then we add like two minutes to our commute, but we can see some new shit at least. Just take the scenic route. Just see some new shit because it's boring to go the exact same way to work every single day or go to the store to the exact same work. So I've always lived in places where you could do that. Like China's a perfect grid. Just move a block over, go down this street instead. You'll get there. You're adding three minutes to your commute, but now you might see some new interesting shit. So I always have this idea that that's going to work in America, but it never works in America. Because in America, I don't know why. I was just going to explain why. I don't know why. But let's guess. It's something, actually, I many times it didn't work in Beijing either. Because in Beijing, it's like they have these main veins. And then the blocks are like, you know, 3,000 yards a block will be like a mile and a half. And you walk into, you, you, you think you can cut through a block, but everything is, is closed off. And it always felt like this like subtle crowd control thing where you can like never, you can't really travel. You can't choose how you travel. You have to just travel by the main vein. And the weird thing is that America is the same. In America, there's like a main vein. You drive through the countryside, you drive wherever, there's a main vein. The flatlands of the valley, of the central valley, the Sacramento Valley, or the foothills, wherever you are, there's going to be a main vein. It's Highway 49. It's Highway 20. You know, whatever it is, there's a main vein. And if you ever feel like, oh, I've been on this fucking main vein. Every time I go to Auburn, it's the same shit. It's the same fucking boring ass road. And if you ever think like, hey, I, I wouldn't mind just adding 15 minutes to my my trip here if I can just go a different route because I'm tired of this route. And it never works. It never fucking works, and it makes me so frustrated. And then, for once, this day, this trip, like, Maddie woke up at my house. She woke me up at 6 a.m. I couldn't fall back asleep. I played StarCraft II a little bit on my computer. I got ready. At 1 p.m., I left. I was going to drive to San Ramon, and then I, I'm like, I don't want to drive the same boring highway. Can I just drive parallel to the highway through something more scenic and for once it worked and I found this weird I didn't plan it I didn't look on the map I just like dragged the blue line on the map hoping that it would work and it found this incredibly beautiful route I think it's called like route 128 or something and it's a road that 
travels parallel to the highway that just connects San Francisco and Sacramento. It's north of it. And then you end up in Napa Valley. So first, it's like these, it's like a dusty, what's, dude, I love these super straight country roads through the central California Valley, where it's like, it's 4pm and the sun is starting to go down and it's like early golden hour. And everything is so yellow. And in my head, I'm like, make a mental note to Google, why does the sunlight look so different in California? Because why does it? It makes no sense. Is there some quality to the air, to like the chemical composition of the air all over this specific state where like as soon as you hit the state line, the color shifts? Like did they draw the state line around some like chemical cloud that makes the sunlight be extra super yellow? Like it makes no sense to me. But so I'm driving and it's a country road and and I'm hoping to get that I'm at wine country and I'm looking at, I'm looking at the plants and it's these beautiful fields of sun dappled golden fields of different plants, but, but they are walnuts and they are, you know, it's the nuts and the almonds and stuff of the valley. It's not wine, even though it sort of looks like wine when the plants are small and it's just like a trellis with a little leafy plant on it. Everything kind of could be wine, but, but I'm driving and it's already a beautiful road. And then I, before I even hit the Napa County line, I hit the mountains and the rolling hills there are so fucking beautiful. And I'm driving around listening to this incredible podcast on Kendrick Lamar, the Dissect. Dissect made a season. Dissect is like a, a podcast where they spend a whole season dissecting an entire album and they've done all these seasons on different Kendrick Lamar albums, but then they did this one season in between seasons where they did Last Song Standing, where they're trying to crown the best Kendrick Lamar song. And I'm just going to recommend this podcast. It's kind of nice if you like uh, um, rap music and Kendrick. And it's it was just so satisfying because they just, I listened to, you know, seven hours of these seven one-hour episodes and listen to all their reasoning about all their songs. Every episode is an album, and they talk about what could be the best candidate from this album. And I listen to all the seven hours of reasoning, and at the end of it, I disagree with them. And we just came up on the same song, and it's a song that just gives me goosebumps. Cause it's so, and it's such a perfect representation of everything that Kendrick Lamar is, like the conceptual nature and the just knowing how to rap and the melodic thing and the just weird production of modulating his voice to be super high pitched and low pitched and and having that be something that actually make that makes sense and makes you feel something that it's like his voice gets weird and low pitched when it's like really a demonic thing talking to you and it's like this incredible cinematic imagery of a beautiful horrible humanized american compton ghetto like it's so humanized and there's this white guy, it's a white guy and a black guy on the podcast, and the white guy is just talking about how, like, he does not have access to seeing these things, like, what the ghetto, what it feels like to be in the ghetto. But listening, diving, spending a lot of time with Kendrick Lamar's music as a white person, you do feel, I, there's no way for us to know if this is true or not, but you feel like you are being educated. You feel like you understand something better. You feel more empathetic to the problem of how horrible it must be to just be a person, a young person in 
like a low, like just a socioeconomic low, shitty Compton situation where your friends have like guns and like once or twice throughout your teen years, you just, you see like a dead person. Like you see someone get shot and then they're dead. Like the trauma of that and then being sucked into it where you're like, you don't feel like that, like you should be, like you don't feel like a killer. You don't feel like a bad person. You don't feel like someone who wants to be there, but things happen. So you end up there and you end up doing horrible things. And it's like the Kenny music is just so good at making that, all that so sympathetic and making it so understandable. Um, And I have felt that. And it's almost a little bit guilty because it's like there's this narrative in mo- in modern progressive sort of how we think about the world where we're not allowed to sort of say that we understand each other's experience or sp- or no we're we're not allowed to speak for each other's experiences and we're definitely we shouldn't say that we really understand. There's like a it's like taboo to say that if you ever say yeah I totally understand how you feel you're sort of breaking the rules because the truth is that you don't. But, like, you feel like you get it sometimes. Anyway, so I'm listening to this podcast and, and, and then, like, just sort of putting on Kenny songs throughout as I'm listening to it and driving through these beautiful California hills. And, and then I hit Napa and it's all just so painfully beautiful. Like, and I get vertigo because, like, the, there's, like, such crazy elevation. There's crazy elevation. Like... You know, you look out to the right and it's like thousands of feet down. There's a lake way beyond, way down. And, and then to your left, there's like a mountain that's so close that you feel like you're going to hit it. And the only problem was that there was these people on, kept being people behind, vehicles behind me trying to go fucking 90 miles an hour on this like winding mountainside road where I, there's like no railing. There's no, it literally feels like I'm just going to slide off the ro- road and just roll down into the valley, which I am certain people do. Every few weeks, I'm certain that someone dies on these roads because it's horrible. But anyways, my vacation started in this great way because like I took a week off from work. Everything at work is stressful, but I'm just putting it up on the shelf and I'm going to, I'm sure it's going to be there when I come back. So... I'm always talking about it, how it's like, there's this Portuguese feeling. Like, there's this meditation exercise of, there's a feeling you can imagine of, what if you're on vacation and you have nothing you're going to do today? There's no time pressure. And the world is here in front of you. And you're just, you just have time to look at it. And what, what, if you imagine that you're in Portugal and you step out on the on the cobblestone little narrow winding street and and it's so winding that you can't see around the corner you can't see very far but you just want to see what's around the corner and you don't have anything on the docket for the whole day and you can just go and it's like the beauty of that that feeling the portuguese feeling the feeling of, i've never been to portugal but the feeling of being in portugal meaning the feeling of having time and space and just giving yourself time and space for unsupervised play where you can just you don't give yourself a goal of what you want to learn about this experience like you want to travel somewhere and like have this really authentic experience like there's no expectation it's just you're looking with your eyes and you're feeling and you're the sun is on your skin and it like feels good and you're just like in this moment and you're just wondering what's what's ahead of you 
And you just move forward out of curiosity, not out of like shame. Because our whole life is like you move forward out of duty and out of fear, fear of poverty. So you have to keep moving forward so you can make money so you won't be poor. And you move forward to meet people because you fear of being lonely. And you like move forward out of shame because you don't want people to judge you. And you move forward out of all these, like, trying to run away from negative things. But, like, the Portuguese feeling is to get to move forward just because you're moving towards something positive. And it's like that fucking feeling, dude. And then realizing as a meditation exercise that we can live our entire lives with the Portuguese feeling. God damn it, dude. It's the most important thing in the whole world. And then... I'm driving through Napa and I, I get a little glimmer of the Portuguese feeling because I I left the house hours and hours early so I don't have to be anywhere. And I just set the destination for Napa in the middle of all of that and I'm listening to Kenny. And then at one point it's also beautiful that I have to turn the music off and just roll the windows down and just like have the hot air on my skin. And then when I hit Napa, the temperature drops like 20 degrees and it's cool, and everything is beautiful, and I find a parking garage, and I, I Google if there's like a Michelin star restaurant that I can just walk into, but my heart starts race, racing because I get stressed out because I'm like, a Michelin star restaurant, though, it's like a very stressful thing. It's a very stressful time and place, right, where if you walk in and you ask, hey, do you take walk-ins, and then the French guy looks at you and he's like, Fucking stupid American. Of course we don't take walk-ins. Get the fuck out of here. And it's like an extremely shameful thing. So I didn't even try. I didn't call any Michelin-style restaurants, even though there's like 13 of them in Napa. And it was like a fucking Wednesday. And it's like the odds that one of those places would have taken a walk-in are high. If I would have called, but instead I just found a parking garage in downtown Napa and there were just all these beautiful restaurants and I just walked around and I found a place called Kitchen Door. And then I was thinking about doing this thing where like, first of all, I was feeling like, I was feeling really single and I was feeling really like, well, actually, honestly, looking back on it, I think what happened is that sometimes in a, I, I don't know. I, I used to, one of the places I lived in Seattle, I, I lived like across the street from this little pedestrian area that cuts through a block where like, it's like just a pedestrian area inside of a block with all these walkways. And in there, there's all these fancy restaurants and maybe like one fancy grocery store and then a couple of gyms, like fancy gyms. And then there would be this thing in the place where I lived in Seattle up by Green Lake where the, the fucking spinning class would let out and you would just get like 50 really, really beautiful sweaty women would just sort of walk out of there and they would all have this like incredible happiness to them because they just did a workout and they their sense of guilt and shame and horror is like is subsiding for three hours of endorphin. There's like an endorphin high of three hours of them just having a little bit of lightness in their step. So they're all like sweaty and and they just like smell like animals and they smell really sexual and they're all really in good shape because they, they have rich husbands and do spinning classes. And so they're, they just like walk around and they just have this lightness to them where they just bump into each other and say hello. And when you sit there and you're eating a sandwich and you look at them all, 
there's this feeling to it. Like you could also just bump around and just talk to them and just like end up with the best one, you know? <laughs> and they, they like, it's like this tiny little micro fiction universe. It just looks like this little universe where it looks like everything is so easy because chemically they just have this like easy feeling in their brain for once that they've just, the, the gym lets out and all these fucking thoughts just, stumble out into the streets is what i'm trying to say so right when i hit napa and i'm walking around with all the restaurants i'm just like hit with like 40 slutty women 40 slutty looking women in lululemon i don't know a couple of fucking goat hoofs so crass but that's that's how we have to do it um that's that's how i have to defend myself because i feel so rejected because i I was in Napa yesterday, and they spinning class let out, and 40 Lululemon women walked past me, and that makes me feel like they're all above me, and they all are worth more than me, and I'm a fucking failure. Anyway, so I picked this restaurant called Kitchen Door, and I was actually thinking about doing this thing where um, my new job, since I got a promotion, there's this thing, there's this program Corporate has this program where you can um, do a quarterly, once per quarter, you can dine at a off-site, unrelated restaurant. And the, the thing is, it has to be relevant to the concept of our restaurant or our hospitality experience. And then if you dine there, they'll reimburse 150 bucks if you write a meaningful, helpful report about it. And I'm like, I love talking about food. I love thinking about food. I love thinking about my job and hospitality. And I love eating good stuff. So I'm like, I'll drive to Napa. I'll just have an expensive dinner. And I'll write a nice big report about it. You know, because every time I read that food and drink section in The New Yorker, it's one page about a restaurant I'll never go to. And every time I feel like it's better than I could write it. But I feel like I could write something 80%, like 80% of that quality. Like, not almost, but almost, almost as good. I could emulate some of those things that they do in there. And I would like to. And I think it would be pleasant to just hit the last key on the keyboard and finish a piece like that and just write 700 words about a dining experience. I think I would really enjoy putting together those 700 words. So I walk into a place called Kitchen Door in Napa and I just imagine myself being like, I had a really nice meal yesterday in Napa. Ooh, in Napa. And I was like in Napa and it was like Napa and I was like in Napa and it was like in Napa Valley, right? And so I had like a, I had, yesterday we had dinner in Napa, right? And so, I sit down and I try to take notes and I realize how fucking hard it is <laughs> and I couldn't do it and I only, could only make four observations. And mostly it was like, because what I wanted to find was, I wanted to find good things that we could steal. But really what I found was just, they have the same problems that we do. You know, there's a fucking new bar back and he's training and they're saying that his training is going pretty good, but he's asking all these annoying questions about the uniform. Like, am I allowed to wear, you know, am I allowed to wear this kind of shoe? Am I allowed to wear this kind of pants? And you just want like, you want to just tell him like, hey, 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 buddy, stop pushing it. Just wear, don't try to get away with, don't try to get away with the shittiest possible uniform try to instead come up with the best like try to look as fucking proper as possible instead of trying to figure out what the shittiest looking uniform is that you can wear without us fucking shitting on you about it like so annoying 
and like drink tickets taking forever and no one ran my card quick enough and all the conversations are like all the shit, you know? What did I write down? I wrote down some things. One manager bumped into one of the bartenders and said, sorry, mate, I meant to kick you harder, which I thought was a funny thing to say when you accidentally kick someone to apologize and then mid apology, uh, do a fake out and, and be like, oh, I actually didn't mean to kick you like that. I meant to kick you way harder. Um, oh yeah. And also shitting on how it's a fancy restaurant, but they did have TVs in the back up by the bar. And whenever you have TVs on in America, they're going to show commercials. And if they show commercials, they're going to show Domino's. So you're sitting here eating like an expensive, fancy pizza. And you're looking up at a TV showing a Domino's commercial. It's like, what are we doing here, guys? Like, throw the TV in the trash. You know, throw the TV. I'm so proud of us at Holbrook for doing an entire concept without TVs. Anyway, so I managed to get a little sliver of Portuguese feeling and then I finished dinner and I had a nice dinner and I couldn't write anything, but but it was nice. And and I uh, get in my car and I get to my uncle's house and I'm so tired because I'd only slept five hours and I'd prepared to fall asleep really early. And then my uncle and me are watching fucking MasterChef and I'm just trying to go to bed and he's not trying to go to bed. And we have to wake up at 6 a.m. and be out of the house by 6.30 and like at 10, we've been watching MasterChef. And then at 11, at like 50, at 10.45, he's like, at 11, I'm gonna, we're going to stop watching this. And then he talks to me about how like, yeah, so there's this thing called binging where you like watch a lot of TV in a row. And it's like streaming services made this thing possible. It's called binging where, where like now when a show comes out, all the episodes are released at once. And it's called binging. And I'm looking at him like, Bro, bro, we are doing that right now. And I don't want to be doing that right now. Don't mansplain binging to me right now, okay? I want to sleep. I slept five hours last night. So then, anyway, fucking at midnight, I finally get to go to bed and my uncle goes in his bedroom and 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 I sleep on a cot in the living room. And it's a really nice cot and it's a really nice bed and then I can like hear him watching tv in the bedroom <laughs> like we'd been binging master chef for like four hours and then he like finally turns it off and goes we go to bed and then he like goes in the bedroom and turns his tv on and turns master chef on and he because he wasn't done binging and it's like bro what and then here's the fucking thing like now this is now the breaking point here I'm going to just, like, I shouldn't, this is shameful in a lot of ways and stuff, but I'm just going to talk about this because it's, like, so deeply dislodging for me. But so here's the thing. I had, okay, okay, yeah, hey, you know how I started saying it? I started saying it as excuses. I started telling the next chapter of the story as excuses and being defensive. And I guess that's what we're doing. I guess we're doing excuses and being defensive. So this whole trip... I'm worried about how my uncle and his ex-wife that we're going with, aunt, my auntie, who I love, love them both dearly. They're both obsessed with QAnon and Fox News and 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 it's like all the stuff that I find very stressful to talk about. I'm going to spend a week with them. So I just, I was like, I'm going to set this up and I'm just going to go with it. You know, I'm never going to fight back. 
if they talk to me about politics, I will just agree and it will just dissipate all the energy and we will not have, like we will not, I will never say anything. I will just do this the way he wants to do it. And the whole time I'm like, we're going to go to Mexico. I don't want to like waste a trip to Mexico and not do a bunch of cool shit. I want to like rent a car and just go exploring and shit. That's what I want. That's my inclination. But that's like my instinct. But I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to do it on his schedule. I'm just going to exist on his time. You know? In the Mac the fucking Marco uh, episode, I talked a bunch about how the value of just like letting go, dropping yourself like the ego and death we really need is to just don't give a shit about what you want. Just exist on someone else's time and just be friends with someone. Just spend time with another human being. And what they say that they want to do, hey, just go do that with them so that you can be two people doing something together so that we are not so fucking lonely. So the whole lead up to the trip, I'm like getting myself in this mindset of whatever he suggests, I'm just going to go along with it because he's got some cool ideas. He's like, we should go deep sea fishing. And I'm like, are we going to rent a car? And he's like, no, we're not going to rent a car. It's a resort. You just chill at the resort and you go deep, deep sea fishing. And one of the days we're going to get on the fucking chartered bus and go to the fishing town. And I'm like, bro, it sounds fine. I want to see an old fishing town. I want to go deep sea fishing. I want to just chill in Mexico and have delicious food. And most of all, I'll just be, I just don't mind being on someone else's schedule. So the whole time I'm setting my, this is all, I'm saying this, but it's also an excuse. Because one of the things he kept saying to me was, don't forget your passport. And he was like, don't forget your passport. Don't forget your swimsuit trunks. Don't forget, uh, what was the third thing he kept saying? Um, I can't remember, but there was like a third thing. He was like, these three things, don't forget these three things. And he's like, don't forget your passport. So I like, I got my passport. I got two swimming suit trunks. I'm ready. Like I got all this, like I got nice suitcases, you know, I got a nice duffel bag that matches my purse. You know, I got all nice gear. Everything is good. You know, everything is in order. My toiletries, my travel toiletries, I have perfect travel toiletries. Everything goes on a plane. I have like, because if I don't have it on a trip, I always need it. Like floss and tweezers and nail clippers, all that shit. Like if I don't have tweezers and nail clippers on a trip, first day of the trip, like I can go six months in my regular life without needing needing like specific – I can't say I go six months without using nail clippers, but, but – Normal, in normal life, I don't need this shit so much. But if I go on a trip and I don't have it, first day of the trip, I have a hangnail. And it's like, okay, trip is ruined. Like, that's the entire trip now. It's just me looking for a fucking Walgreens to just get comfortable to just fucking get my shit figured out. Just getting a fucking... it's it, Trips just get ruined by you need like a tiny thing, like a cord to charge like a device. Or you need a specific cream to solve it or like a medication, like entire trips. I remember when I was living with Clayton Woots, his fucking aunts and mom and sisters. No, his sisters came and visited. And his mom had a mental breakdown because she couldn't find Coca-Cola quick enough. And then they had a big fight and then he just went off and did a bunch of drugs. And then I had to sit in his apartment alone with his sisters and his mom. And the mom was like, yeah, I guess it was kind of like I did definitely overreact when I reacted like that about the Coca-Cola. 
but he also overreacted because he turned it into a huge fight and he just went. And now we came all the way to China to hang out with him, all the way from Ohio to China. We all, none of us have ever been outside of the U.S. before. We all had to go get a passport to come visit him because he was a gay guy who didn't want to stay in fucking shithole Idaho, Appalachia. So he was like, fuck it, I'll go to China. And he ends up in China and he tries to rebuild with his family and they come and fucking visit him, travel all the way to Shanghai to visit him. And then they have a fight first day and he just fucks off and goes and sleeps at someone else's house and he didn't see them for days. And I had to sit there with his sister and his mom. And his mom was like, I, I, I did freak out about the Coca-Cola and I shouldn't have because I was just so weirded out by the place that the Coca-Cola be became a stand-in for how I was like freak having anxiety in a bigger way. But he's also not handling this well because he's doing drugs right now instead of hanging out with his mom. And I traveled all the way to China to see him. And he's not even here for hanging out with me. What was I saying about that? Yeah, trips get ruined about this small shit. So as I'm like preparing for this trip, I have everything perfectly ready. And I'm my mind state is perfect that I'm just going to do what my uncle wants, but I have all my toiletries and everything is ready to go. And then we go to bed late at midnight. I did. I only slept five hours the night before. I go to bed at midnight. I set the alarm for 6 a.m. And here's the thing. Excuse me, a little burp. Haven't even had a water, already burped. I wake up naturally at 5.30 a.m. after five and a half hours of sleep. And I start to ruminating and I start thinking, I'm like, do I need a visa to go to Mexico? Like, we have to leave for the airport in one hour. Did I forget about getting a visa? And then I'm like, nah, I'm sure we didn't forget about a thing like that. He would have told me, like, I'm sure it's Mexico. Like, you just fill something out on the plane and it's Mexico. I'm sure it's fine. And then it hits me. I do need a visa to go to America, though. Because I'm a fucking Swede and I have a green card. And my green card is my travel document. It is the document I need to re-enter the country. It's not the only thing I need. I also need my passport. But for me to re-enter America, I need my green card and my passport. And I've been going so fucking local recently that I forgot that I'm a fucking alien. I'm a permanent, I'm a lawful permanent resident. I'm an LP, LPR. So then I Google it and I'm like, can I, can I? get back into America without my green card? Can they just look me up in the database? And I Google it. And first of all, all the hits are crazy. Like not this situation. All the hits are other situations where it's like, what if I'm waiting for my green card? Like all the situations I've been in, but this situation, so the closest thing I can get, is like, what if I'm abroad and I lose my green card and I want to get back in? What if you lose your green card as an LPR and you want to get back into America? The only way to get back into America is to find it a consulate, abroad, get an appointment, fill out all the paperwork, pay the $500 filing fee, and wait two, three days for them to uh, issue you a travel document that is like a temporary thing that will get you into the country. That's what I need. So I'm like, Jesus fucking Christ, I'm going to Puerto Vallarta for six days. I do not have time to go to the consulate. This is fucked. I can't leave the country without my green card. I don't have my green card. I live three hours from here. I live three hours north. I don't have time to drive north, get my green card, drive back down to the bay and get the flight. The flight is in literally six hours and that would take exactly six hours. Like I have, 
If I had 30 more minutes, I could almost make it, but I don't. So I'm sitting there and it's like, I cannot express to you how much I start to freak out because it's like, it's money. Like it, it, it starts hitting the stuff about money in the big ways where like the things I'm afraid of are, I start looking at like, what are solutions? I can fly tomorrow instead. I can buy a ticket for tomorrow. And then I look at tickets and the tickets are like a thousand bucks because buying a ticket a day before is not going to be a good deal, you know? Or I can just cancel the whole trip. And then I'm like, I'm I'm really sensitive to my family viewing me as a shit show because so much of my life. The thing I was saying about how my dad, my mom decided not to call my dad before 6 p.m. Like there is a version of that for me where like they didn't really know that it was because of drugs and alcohol, but they knew that I didn't have my shit together and that I would always lose my shit and that I never like misplace my belongings, I mean. And also lose my shit in the other mean, like I would always just freak out and be anxious and fuck things up and, and just like have to call my mom and be like, hey, you got to give me a thousand bucks right now. I'm in trouble. You know, I was always fucked up like that. And I am so sensitive to fucking things up now that's ex- expensive or fucks things up. And here my uncle has spent all this money on getting me a hotel room and bought me a first class ticket on Alaska direct from SFO to PVC or whatever Puerto Vallarta is called in the fucking airplane airport acronym you know PVL so it's thousands of dollars if I just say I can't go on the trip it's thousands of dollars so I'm sitting there freaking out at 6 30 a.m and I I don't know what to do so I message like a couple of people And I'm like, I don't know what to do. And the other thing I'm afraid of is like, I could go and I could ask someone to go to my house and ask my landlord for my spare key and get into my house and get me my green card and go to the UPS store and overnight shipping, most expensive version, overnight shipping, send me my green card. But then the trip will be this type of trip that I've been on many times with fucked up weird Chinese visas where you go for seven days and you're waiting for something in the mail and you need to get it. You need to receive it before you can leave and you have an out date that you have to be out by. So it's like you're just waiting for this fucking weird plan of a visa to arrive in the mail because Chinese visas are always like six month visas or 12 month visas. And then you have to leave the country to get a new one. So you buy a ticket out and back. So you're going to be out of the country for two weeks. So the first day out of the country, you go to the Chinese consulate and apply for a new visa. And then they're going to mail you the new visa and they, they literally have your passport. So you have a ticket going back to China, but you don't have your passport and you're waiting for the Chinese dude to make you a visa, put it in your passport, mail you your passport so that you get it in time for you to fly back to China for a ticket you already have. And if you miss your flight, it's like another fucking thousand dollars to get a new flight and you get a new ticket, right? I've been on so many trips like that where I'm trying to chill with my family for two weeks, but the whole time I'm just like hung over and like suffering from withdrawals for whatever fucking plant food I'm addicted to right now. Whatever fucking, you know, doggy biscuit I've been smoking. And I'm just waiting for something in the mail and I can't chill. And there are all these plans that I don't know if they're going to come together. And I'm freaking out. The whole trip is just me freaking out. 
And I can't tell if it's because I'm going through withdrawals or I don't know if I'm going to get my visa on time and everything's fucked up. And multiple times it's been fucked up and I've gone to the airport and it's like, nah, this visa was filled out wrong. They issued it wrong. You can't go. And I have to go back and it cost me a bunch of money. And I've had jobs where like I had a job in China and I like go to Sweden to get a new visa and something's fucked up with it. And I'm stuck in Sweden for like three and a half weeks and I miss a bunch of work and my work is pissed off. And that's the biggest fear of all with this Puerto Vallarta trip that I have this new job. I've only had the job for like a little bit more than a month, but I'm already on vacation. And then my biggest fear is that the vacation gets fucked up and I'm stuck in Mexico and I have to go get an appointment at the fucking U.S. consulate in Puerto Vallarta waiting for them to fucking mail me a foil, a traveling document. It's called a foil for some reason. And I'm sure with COVID, it's like two weeks. So I just have to email the hotel and be like, I'm stuck in Mexico, guys, because I forgot my stupid green card in Grass Valley. So everything is fucked up. And they just have to like, they would, I don't, I mean, they wouldn't fire me because they wouldn't want to, but they would, they would hold it over. Like, it would be like when Kelly in the busiest season, was gone for five weeks straight. Like, we were not happy about that. <laughs> I'm not going to say what we did. I can neither confirm nor deny what happened, you know. But Kelly took a very long Mexico vacation when we needed her the most, and we didn't like it, and it would be a little bit like that. So my biggest fear is being st- going and being stuck in Mexico. So I'm like terrified of going to the airport and it's like all these things like all my biggest fears like money and airports and flights and like i'm so scared of travel documents and there was like fucking four years of me waiting for the green card and just feeling shitty about everything i've covered that on the pod so many times but like yeah so and then also I'm sitting there at 530 and it's dark and I don't have anyone to talk to about this. And when I get in that worried state, I really need to like talk to someone about it. Which relates to this other thing that I I'm not going to talk about it now, but I'm going to preview it for you all now that another management lesson for myself. I had a management lesson for myself last week. I'm going to talk about this next week, maybe or two weeks from now that I have to stop talking through my problems so much because like I'll have a problem with another person like interpersonal relationship issue at work and I my thing of dealing with it will be to talk through it with other with third party people that know both of us and that it's like an observer error where like observer error is this fallacy where you try to watch something and it grows and the error is that the watching influences it and what I, what I mean by that is like the act of talking through the problem actually makes it a bigger problem because me being in a workplace, having a conflict with person B and telling person C and D and E about it and me feeling a lot better because I had to, I got to talk, I got to vent with someone. Venting makes it a lot worse because now person B finds out through like all these other people who heard about it secondhand about me venting. And now everyone knows that I have like a conflict with person B and it just makes it way bigger. Whereas if I could just sit on it and feel shitty about it a little bit and pretend like it's small, it would be small. But when I talk through it and act like it's big, it becomes big. So anyway, 
that doesn't really apply to this thing because here I just was stressed out and I didn't know what to do. Like I don't have my green card. I can't leave the, I can't get back into the country if I leave. What do I do? So I'm just sitting on a cot in fucking the outskirts of the outskirts of the greater San Francisco area and waiting for my uncle to wake up so I can talk to him about it. And he wakes up and he puts his shoes on and I tell him about it. And he's like, it's fine. You just need your passport. And then I'm like, yeah, but are you sure though? And he's like, yeah, I was in that situation once. I just went here. And I'm like, but when was that? And I start pushing him on it. And he's like, actually, a police officer told me that. And then I'm like, what are you talking about? I Googled it. Like, it's not okay. Like, I can't enter America without a green card. And then he's like, no, I did it. I did it once. And eventually he tells me that he did it 40 years ago. <laughs> and I'm asking him, like, was it before or after 9-11? Like, was it more than 20 years ago? And he's like, yeah, it was 40 years ago. And I'm like, yeah, well, 40 years ago, everything was easier. And he's like, yeah, you're right. And then he, like, lays back down. And then here's the thing that's, like, in e even – I don't know. I mean, it's very – it's I, it's hard to talk about, but I'm going to talk about it. And the thing is that, like, my uncle wasn't doing good. He lay down and he was his face was completely gray and he couldn't get out of bed. And he's like, I'm not feeling good. And he's like, I'm so tired. And I'm trying to talk to him about my fucking problem and what I should do. And I'm like, look, 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 I can do these things. Either I buy a ticket and fly tomorrow and it's a thousand bucks or I have someone ship me the thing, but I cannot get stuck in Mexico because of work. And he just like does not respond to any of it. And then he finally admits to me confesses that he he's like i had too many edibles last night i can't go to mexico <laughs> and then i'm like what you had dude it's 6 50 a.m or like it's six no it's like 6 15 a.m we have to leave in 15 minutes get out of bed what do you mean you had too many edibles? You can't go to Mexico. He's like, I can't move. I'm like, bro, you're too high. It's weed. You just wait it out. Sure, you can't drive. I'll drive. Margie will drive. Whatever. Just sit in the car, wait it out. It's weed. You're not going to die. He's like, no, I'm going to die. <laughs> and I'm like, fuck. You did too many edibles. He, he's like, I can't go to Mexico. And then so I'm like, I'm going to call your ex-wife, dude, and get her down here because we need to get you out of bed. And then we call her and he and and she's like, it's what? What's the time? And she hangs up on me after saying like she was sleeping. And then I tell him like she was sleeping at 6.15. We have to leave in 15 minutes. He's like, no, no, no. She wasn't sleeping. She's been up for two hours. She needs two hours to get ready. Like she is not sleeping. We're leaving in 15. Like, like this is not, that's not how this goes. So then weirdly, I, weirdly, I solve my problem and my problem goes away. I just have this idea which is where the American mind goes. It's not where my poor person Swedish mind goes. My poor person Swedish mind that feels like it doesn't deserve anything. Just feels like, oh, yeah, okay. 
forgot my green card. My first class ticket is a waste. I'm just going to have to fucking throw that ticket away and buy a completely new ticket. But the American entitled rich person mind thinks of things like, hey, call them and change the ticket. So I just call them and I'm like, hey, can I fly tomorrow instead? And she's like, sure. We're going to give some money back to you because you're flying first class and tomorrow I don't have any first class tickets. So you're going to fly coach tomorrow. And I'm like, yeah. Yeah, I've been flying coach my whole life. I was ready to do my first first class ticket. But but here I was weighing these different options of like that would cost me $1,000 or an insane amount of stress. So like, yeah, put me in coach, bro. Put me in coach right now. And she's like, oh, yeah. And I'm like, can I fly back first class? And she's like, yeah, you can fly. Like you're flying back ticket. We're not changing that. So I changed my ticket. And it's not a problem. And like, I'm just going to fly tomorrow instead. And that's why I'm recording a podcast right now. It was fine. She just like let me change the ticket. There was no fee. Like everything, I'm used to everything being difficult and horrible. But it wasn't. It was fine. Okay, so my problem went away, and then it was revealed that there's actually a bigger problem. But so let's um, let's drink a water first. So this is a Celsius. I think these have an insane amount of caffeine, like 200 milligram or something. Uh, like these make your whole head hurt. Dietary supplement. Yeah, but how much caffeine though? Oh, yeah, 200 milligrams of caffeine in a small can. (gasps) Watermelon. We're doing three watermelon-flavored waters today. So it's 5 p.m. I want to sleep in like three hours, so I'm just going to have one sip. Ooh, smells delicious. Mm, Gentle bubbles, insane amount of sweetener. Oh, that's so good. Watermelon works when it's really sweet. Celsius. Not really watery, not really a sparkling water. Needed a third watermelon drink, brought, bought a Celsius. So anyway, then like um, I managed to just change my ticket. And then my aunt shows up and she's, it took her 45 minutes to get ready. And she shows up and she's like, I've never gotten ready that fast. And then we go in the bedroom and my uncle's in bed and his face is all gray. And he's like, and I tell her, I'm like, he took too many edibles last night. And she's like, yeah. And look, I don't know. There are many different ways I could tell the story. I could tell the story in a way where I make fun of him. I could tell this in a story where I like hide the truth and sort of evade what really happened. I could explain this whole thing just as a funny thing or normal thing or like the most normal American way is probably to just tell it as a, it's just another thing that happens. But really the truest thing is that it dislodged this thing for me of like, it is so obvious to me that everyone in my dad's family end, ends up the same way. My uncle has no friends. He doesn't do anything. He lives in a he lives a very very small life. It's about ten foot by ten foot. He orders everything on Amazon. He watches TV all day, and I'm so afraid that I'm on that track where it seems fine right now and it seems like I have a job right now. He had a job. All these people were fine when we were in our 20s and our 30s, but after a while, the pressure just gets too much. 
and we just cave in on ourselves in addiction and alcoholism and loneliness. And my aunt's like, yeah, he, he can't drink anymore. Because he drank, he drank too much for too long, so he can't drink, so now he does this. And my uncle is on the bed, and he's like, he looks at her, and he's like, I can't go to Mexico. And I make fun of him. In the moment, I, I laugh, and I make fun of him. I'm like, you're being so fucking dramatic, bro. It's weed. You, it's weed. Like, just wait a little bit, and you'll be fine. Like, yeah, sometimes an edible, you have to wait like eight hours, but... Eight hours from now, you'll be completely fine. Like, stop being so dramatic. And he looks at my aunt and he just goes, you know, they were married for like uh, 20 years and they've been divorced for like 30 years or whatever. They've known each other forever. This guy's in his mid-70s. That's what's terrifying to me. Like, that my dad, my all my uncles, aunt, like everyone's so... These people are not young, but they don't have it figured out. Like, whatever I'm trying to understand or master or whatever skill I'm trying to pick up in AA, whatever like program I'm trying to develop for myself in Alcoholics Anonymous, they are in their 70s and they still haven't developed that program. They are still just like fucking themselves up. And and then my uncle's like, he's just like, I, I, I don't feel good. I can't go to Mexico. And he looks at my aunt and he goes, you remember 2005? That's how I feel right now. That's all he said. It's like, what the fuck happened in 2005, guys? I have no idea what happened in 2005. She didn't even respond. She just looked at him and he just laid back down. You know, these people, they've known each other for 50 years. You know, you have all that history that you can just be like, remember 2005? Imagine, imagine I do. I mean, Wow, here's something I've never said out loud on the podcast that is so obvious to me in this moment. <laughs> this is so horrible. My dad has no friends. His best friend, arguably, is my mom, his ex-wife. She has remarried. She has friends. She has a good life. She has moved on. He has nothing. Some He can't use a phone. Sometimes to call his son, he has to walk to his ex-wife's home to place a phone call to his son. My uncle, he has no friends. He has nothing. He's just an alcoholic. He is going to Mexico with his ex-wife. Because he just, you know, you break up, but you also can't figure out anything better. And then me, <laughs> and you know what I'm going to say now? It's so fucking funny. I've never realized this pattern before. It's so funny. Me, I'm out here like I broke up with Maddie two months ago. But like two days ago, Maddie slept at my house, you know? Like you break up, but it's also your best friend. Like I'll have nothing. I'll be, I'll be the loneliest little man with like one ex-girlfriend. I don't know. If I can just make sure to have many, many exes, oh God. <laughs> if I can just make sure to have like 10 ex-girlfriends that I'm really good friends with, maybe I'll never die alone, you know? Oh God. So the Erickson men are doomed to these lonely, horrible, very, very small lives of alcoholic death where you have no friends 
but you have one X. And that X is like your, you know, the only source of communication with the outside world. That's that's how we do it, huh? Oh, God. It's like, oh, God. Julie sent me a birthday gift. Dated Julie for a couple of years. Broke up. Spent years being in a state of her being my ex-girlfriend. And us still hanging out, spending time together. You know? Leaving behind her. Just traveling around, her and me, broken up. Exes, leaving around, a, leaving behind a trail of amateur porn and orange peels. <clears throat> That's from an atmosphere song. Um, yeah, okay. I'm happy we're having all these breakthroughs. So I'm sitting in a chair watching my uncle, and I'm just like, he's so not young, and he's so not taking care of himself, and he so doesn't have shit figured out. And so then. He can't even call Alaska because his face is gray and he starts throwing up in a plastic trash can next to his bed. And his ex-wife has to call the airline to rebook his ticket too because he can't go to Mexico either. And then it's like, it's so funny. The ex Margie is like, she needs to wake up at 5 a.m. to be ready to leave at 6.30 a.m., right? And she looks at me and she's like, thank God you called me at 6.20 because I was sleeping and, like, I set the alarm for 5 p.m., you know? Classic, classic move. And then she is, as I've covered on many episodes of this podcast, she's really into uh, Christianity and, you know, how there's only one guy, you know, and it's Jesus, so she looks at me and she's like, he, someone really doesn't want us to go to Mexico today. You know, between the edible vomiting gray faced uncle in can't get out of bed and me not having a green card and her setting her alarm wrong. It's like someone really doesn't want us to go to Mexico. And Hey, this time, Hey, Hey, I'll just, I'll just surrender this one. I'll give you this one. It's true. Someone really doesn't want us to go to Mexico, but. I hope he's cool with us going to Mexico tomorrow because we're going to Mexico tomorrow. So, <clears throat> yeah. Remember 2005. That's how I feel now. It's like, should I or should I not ask what happened in 2005? I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I have heard stories of bad things where he like just was bedridden with different things of just being hung over and you know, you're trying to go on vacation and you just shit the bed and you just lay there in your own shit and you can't even move, you know? Classic, just like regular garden variety alcoholic stuff. This stuff is norm. This stuff is commonplace. In the rooms, in the meetings, this is what it is, dude. It's what everyone is. It's weird. I don't know why I did it, but at certain points... Uh, I took photos, like when I was drinking, I would drink too much and like I would feel bad. Like I, I have these photos, like I have some photos on my phone of myself just in different compromised situations. Like there's one series of photos where I just like threw up all over the 
bathroom. Luckily in China, a lot of times they like build a bathroom with a shower and a toilet in there, but they don't like, they don't really conceptualize it very well before building it. So it's really just a tiled tiny little box. And on one end, there's a toilet. And on one end, there's a drain and a shower. And then there's a sink. And there's like nothing separating anything from anything. So you're really just standing, you know, a few inches from your toilet showering. So when you vomit all over your toilet, you can kind of just turn the shower on and just host the whole thing off. And, and it's just like a sort of mental asylum style, you know, it's just like a very, like it's, it's, it's horrible and sad and, and like very pathetic and dystopian, but it's also like very convenient. What was the things I was talking to Maddie about where I was saying how, oh yeah, I was saying how the best toothbrush is a Swedish toothbrush of a brand Tippe. And then in America, all the toothbrushes, they just overthink it and make them complicated so they can charge $9 for a toothbrush. But you don't want all these angles. You just want simplicity. And you don't want it to made out of bamboo. Like you can get fucking algae black fucking bristles with bamboo wood. Simple hemp toothbrush. Or you can go complicated plastic. But what I want is simple plastic. And then I show her these like good Swedish toothbrushes and she tells me, and I'm like, I imagine that the only place in, paradoxically, the only place in America where you can get a good toothbrush is in a prison. Like certain things in America are best in prison. And then she looked at it and she was like, yeah, or a mental asylum. Um, uh, yeah, let's not unpack that. <laughs> Let's not unpack that. Let's not unpack that. But so then we just call the Alaska Airlines and they're wonderful and we rebook all of our tickets for tomorrow. So now we're all flying tomorrow at 10.35 a.m. Direct flight. We're not doing first class anymore because we shit the bed on first class and we're going to have to be cool with that. And we... And then... I have this free day. And there are many things that you can say about a free day. Because a a surprise free day is like, on the one hand, it's this, you know? On the one hand, it's this. On the one hand, when your schedule opens up suddenly, and someone knows that your schedule just opened up, if they suggest that they want to do something with you, it's very, very hard to get out of it now. Because there are literally no thing, there are no excuses now. Like if you were going to go to a barbecue with a guy, imagine that you and Johnny are going to go to a barbecue at your fucking coworker's house. And then the coworker texts and says, I'm sorry, we all have COVID. The barbecue is canceled. And then you and Johnny are already on the way to the guy and you have to turn around. And then now Johnny says, hey, you want to go do fucking, you want to go to karaoke? You want to go to fucking Olive Garden? In that moment, it's, you don't want to go to Olive Garden and you don't want to do karaoke. But in that moment, it's impossible to say any excuse because the guy knows that your plans just fell through. You know, it's like this very uniquely, you're uniquely cornered in those situations. So what happened to me today is that I woke up 
my trip to Mexico got postponed exactly 24 hours, and it's about 7.30 a.m., and the sun has just come up, and I'm sitting there with my aunt, and she's telling me how she feels like I'm going to be an apostle and how I'm going to start believing in God and turn all my f- Swedish family members into God-fearing Swedes because they're all atheists. And then she takes out a Bible, <clears throat> and she's like, this is 60 bucks, I bought this for you. It's a specific new type of like readable Bible. And she starts reading t- reading from it. And in that moment, I'm like, my mind is like racing and I'm like trying to be like, oh, actually I have to, I have this thing. I have to go, I have to go do this thing. But like, she knows that I'm supposed to be going to the airport right now. And my Mexico trip has been postponed exactly 24 hours she knows that i have exactly 24 hours to spare (laughs) and there's not an excuse in the world there's nothing i can say she knows that my schedule is wide open so i just lean into it and i ask to read and i read and we read from john and we read from psalms and we read from fucking I don't know, you know, New Testament shit. We talk about Lucifer and how, and that's the only part that I actually found really, really interesting. I do find all of it interesting. I like, I'm trying to, to just see her as a person and to just feel what she's feeling, even though I don't believe what she believes. I'm trying to feel what she's feeling and I'm trying to talk to her. And it's like, there's so much of it where I want to bring it to a specific level and talk to her about it on a specific level. She's she's really really convinced that we are living in the end of times and that a lot of people will turn to jesus in the near term because we're about to hit the apocalypse or whatever so like you know like right before the apocalypse jesus kind of does like a little last last hurrah of converting extra people just to make it kind of good just to go out on a good note you know he made creation and then right before destroying it, he just like wants to end on a kind of kind of chill note. So he like converts a bunch of people to himself, to his own ism. So like she thinks that a lot of people will turn to Jesus. And, and then I try to bring that up to a level of like, but can't we acknowledge though that like it is true at the same time that people have at all times throughout history always believed that they were living in end times and that the end was going to happen in the next, in the like their lifetime, in the next decade, in the next 50 years, whatever, in the near term. People have always, because it's like very easy to feel like the human brain really has a, some, for some reason, the human brain is really comfortable thinking in terms of that, of how, of self importance and how, how we are the protagonists of a story that matters, you know? Yeah, she just wouldn't have it. She's like, yeah, but it's true, though. Like, it's true that we're now living in end times. And I'm like, yeah, but don't we just all want to believe that we are the dreamers of the dream? And maybe we're not, you know? Maybe this isn't the most important moment in history. You know, every four years, we're like, this is the most important election in our lifetime. And it's like, maybe it's not, though. Maybe things are just keeping on trucking. And I can agree that people fucking hate each other right now, though. But, like, people at different places have hated each other a lot, you know? But anyway, 
And the other angle that I was, she just, I mean, I, look, I love her and I love her gumption and I love how much she cares about people and how much she cares about me. And I really, she was like, I really want God to come to you and show you something because you like need to be shown something to believe. And I'm like, bro, I'm here. And I don't say it in that combative way, but I'm like, I spiritually, I am here. Like, in my mind, I was like, please, like, can I just drive home now? And on the drive, I want God to just, like, do something crazy. Like, just spell it out for me in, like, burning letters in the fucking Central Valley agriculture fucking, just the fucking yellow fields. Just spell it out for me in the yellow. Just show me a sign, you know? Something fun that I can, can I see a sign? Like, everyone else is seeing signs. And I'm like, bro, I'm into it. Like, just just hit me with something, you know? Hit me with a couple of signs. I'll play the game. Like, I'll live the rest of my life as a Christian. You know? I'm into it. I want, I'm bored. I'm bored of being an atheist. It's so fucking boring being an atheist. It's so fucking boring just knowing, like, that the universe is governed by these laws and the primordial ooze and weighing the questions of like, was it multi, was it just one starting event of where how DNA was created? Or like, was it created multiple times on Earth or just one time? Or like, has it been created on other planets? And it's like, boring. But, and then I'm trying to have the conversation on my level or I'm trying to meet her in between and it doesn't work very well. And then there's this other conversation I was trying to meet her in between where it's like she has a lot of thoughts that are her thoughts that feel really inspired. And then she has a lot of thoughts that show up in her head that she feels are very clearly the Holy Spirit put them there. Like it is the speaking. She They, they come from the outside. And then I ask her like, is it, can you tell the difference between if a thought is from you or from the Holy Spirit? Or is it not important to know the difference? And she's like, it's very important to know the difference. Like when you have a thought, it's very important to know the difference if it's from yourself or from the Holy Spirit. And, you know, I've talked about this, you know, the fucking upstream God of consciousness of what it feels like to be a human and how thoughts just show up in your head. And it's like thinking that they are from a Holy Spirit is a very fucking you know, neat and logical explanation model because the explanation model that atheists have is not, like, we don't have one. It's just the mind is kind of crazy, you know? Consciousness is kind of crazy and it has a certain feeling, a certain valence to it, and that's it. It's just, it just feels crazy and it feels weird and things show up and they feel like they're really your thoughts and then other thoughts feel like they're not and... And you can feel totally derealized, like you are not even yourself, and you can feel depersonalized, and you can feel super like you are you, and you can feel all these different kinds of things, and it's like, I don't fucking know. But <clears throat> there, she kind of got on my level, and we could kind of have an interesting conversation about it. But the really interesting thing was when she was talking about Lucifer and how Lucifer became the devil because... He was jealous when God created man. And she described his body and how he's like a musical instrument and he didn't have a heart. Instead, he had a musical instrument in his chest. That's how Lucifer's body was built. And his whole body was like, he's really tuned in with the vibrations 
and like music and he's really like the angel of music and he's like the most important angel and he was the closest to God and that's why he was so jealous when God created man because he would no longer be the closest to God there was now there would now be this man who is man would be closer to God than the angels and man would have more of God's DNA than 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 him and and it's this jealousy that made him fall from grace and he's so in tune with all the vibrations and that's why through music he can really sort of like that's why there's all this skepticism around music because like the devil's music like the devil can speak to us through music like there's really holy music but then there's also devil music and and the body of how the devil Lucifer is vibration and his body is musical instruments and he's the most beautiful musical instrument. All of that, she was talking about that for a while and all of that, I was like, I fucks with this. That's fucking poetic as, poetic as fuck. That's beautiful as fuck. I love it. And then I was trying to have her talk to, talk to me more about the Lucifer stuff. And then she's like, no, nah, no, nah, you got to read the Bible a little bit more first. And I'm over here like just... Like, I'm so ready to be converted to Satanism. <laughs> That's not funny. I just, yeah. I don't know. So we talked about it for an hour, and then and then I told her that, and then she apologized for talking about it so much, and I said, nah, dude, I like it. It's like, I like, I like that we think about stuff, and, you know? Because for me, it is... A sobriety and, and sobriety and belief are connected. There is something about it how like my dad can never get sober and my uncle can never get sober and all of these blood relatives I have, they are doomed, like quite literally, figuratively and literally, because they don't be we don't believe in anything. Like we have no anchor point. We have no philosophical foundation or anchor point. We just are. Like we lost everything. Somewhere in the secularization of us, we lost everything and we just want to feel holy again. And the only way we ever found of how our skin could feel alive with this like wonderful holiness is through drugs and alcohol. Meanwhile, my aunt's out here being like two days ago, I started speaking in tongues. I was in the, I was in a church. I was in this really big church and I just saw this angel and he just stood in the middle of the room and he had this sword and it was like fucking 50 yards long, his sword and the sword symbolized the Holy Spirit. And it was so long that it was like cutting through the roof of the, of the thing. And I asked him like, what's your name, angel? And she saw this angel with her own eyes and she had this like deep spiritual experience and she has those experiences all the time. And it's like such a good life. It just is such a rich, good life. We don't need to drink or do drugs and you still have these like deeply holy, weird, fascinating experiences. And You'd go to Bible study and you sit around and you like use your brain and read a text and think about stuff. And then I'm like, she was describing all these things and her interpretation of these, of these texts. And I'm all, and the critical part of me is like, how like, oh, but dude, all that stuff about Lucifer, it's not in the text, like you're just making it up. But then the more charitable way to hear what she's saying is that like, no, she reads the text, she interprets it, and then the Holy Spirit guides her thoughts along the way. And like that is how, what, like that is a defensible way to just like, 
do big interpretations of stuff. Like you interpret shit big and loose and you be- and you you believe in your own interpretation because you believe that the Holy Spirit guided you throughout the interpretation. So you come up with this and it's like such a good life. God, I'm so jealous of the the believer's life. You know, the life of the believer is just incredible. It's so rich and beautiful. And I wish I could live that life, but the only the only belief I ever had was drugs and alcohol. The only time I ever felt touched by the Holy Spirit was was on ketamine, you feel me? You know, smoking something with some shenanigans in it. You know, hitting that one with the shenanigans in it? Pray you didn't hit that. The one with the shenanigans in it. And so I woke up at 5.15 a.m. and I had this incredible problem of how I didn't have my green card, but then that wasn't even the problem. The problem was that my uncle couldn't go to Mexico. I couldn't go to Mexico, but that's fine. My uncle couldn't go to Mexico, and that's the problem because I am my uncle. I am my dad, and I am my brothers, you know. And then, like, God damn it, fuck. It pisses me off so bad. I wish I wasn't cursed, you know. And then she asked the angel, and my aunt's all like, yeah, two days ago I was in church, and this angel, he was like tall like a building, and he had a sword. And I asked him, what's your name, angel? And he looked at me and he said, holy refreshing. Holy refreshing? Your name is holy refreshing? And the angel just spoke, holy refreshing. And it's like, that's his name, holy refreshing. And I'm like, okay. It's fucking awesome. And then she spoke in tongues for a little bit. And I just sat there and I just looked at her and she she spoke in tongues and and I thumbed through the Bible she gave me and listened to her speaking in tongues. And it was mostly sounding like fake Italian. <laughs> speaking in tongues is... Mm. Oh, shit. I forgot to talk about this. Okay, so this is watermelon mint, Nixie, sparkling water. Homie, I was just thirsty. I was just thirsty and I just drank the water. And this is delicious. Nixie brand sparkling water, USDA organic watermelon mint. Mmm. Watermelon mint. I thought I didn't like watermelon. God. Mmm. I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, let's not. Let's not. Let's not say anything racist about watermelon. Um. So, yeah. I had to listen to my aunt speaking in tongues for a while because she knew I had nowhere else to be. Was going to try to see if I could tell her that I had somewhere else to be. Realized that she knew that I had nowhere else to be. And that's how it goes sometimes. And it's fine because I love her. And now I'm about to go to Mexico with her for six days. And I'm just going to go with it all. I'm going to remember my green card and I'm going to fucking have certain... This is such a funny... This is such a funny prequel episode because next episode... Honestly, I'll probably record an episode in Mexico because I kind of have to. I'll get some nice agua de mineral. I'll pour some salt in there, squeeze a lime in there. Some mineragua. Hey, papi. Hey, papi. (laughs) God, so white. (laughs) So fucking white. 
whitest guy I ever saw. That's me. Uh, whitest podcast ever. But yeah, I'm going to record another podcast and I'm going to look back on this. And maybe I'm just going to, I don't know. Am I going to have a bunch of fights with them? Am I not going to? Am I just going to? It's tough. It is tough because I'm a liberal and I'm an atheist and they are MAGA, QAnon, Fox News. Yeah, it's all, it's, it's pretty much all they got and it's, it's tough for me. But I love them. I love them because they're my family and even if they weren't my family, I'd love them, you know? You know, these people are Ohana and Ohana means family and family means no one gets left behind. And that's what I always say to Lilith. God, it's so funny. I accidentally called her pork chop because that's what my ex-wife used to call me. She used to call me pork chop as a cute term for sometimes when... I was like in bed and I wouldn't want to get out of bed. And she's like, pork chop, you got to get out of bed. And it's such a cute little term for someone, like endearing term for diminutive or whatever that word is. So I used it on Lilith, not knowing that it, when you, when a boy calls a girl pork chop, apparently it means that he's calling her kind of fat. And so I used it in front of chef and he immediately was trying not to laugh and he was laughing so fucking hard he was trying not to laugh and now it has become this thing where apparently fucking chef and lilith and all these people from the kitchen went to saw to see king gizzard and the lizard wizards which is some fucking live rock and roll bullshit white people music and when they went to see him they went on a road trip and he woke them up at 7 a.m with a fucking sandwich and he threw a sandwich in lilith's face and was like pork chop wake up and it has now become this term where he refers to Lilith as my pork chop. <laughs> it's just so fucking cute. It's so fucking cute. And whenever I go in the kitchen and need something, he's always like, ask your pork chop for it. And it's so cute. I love it. And I don't, she's, I don't want to comment on her body in any way. I don't want to say that she's a thicky and I don't want to say that she's not a thicky. She's just perfectly perfect the way she is and i i don't know it's fascinating the rise and the fall of that in the pot because i do remember like when i started working at holbrook i didn't realize how young she was and for a second i was like should i marry lilith and then now i literally think of her as like a little sister i do respect that journey though it is important it is important to be to be able to compartmentalize and to take people in and out of compartments like that is just good that is just good. So uh, what was I talking about? Nixie here. This one is a fucking 8 out of 10. Delicious. Um, yeah, so, but anyway, I'm going to look back. I don't know what this trip is going to be like, but I'm going to ask about, like, my uncle looked at his ex-wife and said, remember t 2005? That's what I feel like right now. And I'm going to ask him, I think, in the, what the fuck happened in 2005, bro? And I'm sure it's horrible. Like, the way they talked about it and the way they reacted, I'm sure it's some real fucking shit you would open up about in an AA meeting, you know? I'm sure it's bad. But then, after listening to my aunt speaking in tongues for a bit, and I just, I hugged her and I... You know, I, f I care about her so much, and and I, I don't know. 
do I need it to change? Do I need us to have more of a bridge about, do we need to be more similar or is it already good enough? I think maybe our relationship is already good enough because I find it wonderful and I don't mind listening to her talking about things from her book study class and her religious extremist book study class, you know? Like if I had like a Muslim friend who was like a religious extremist and they had like a Quran study class where they like go deep in the stories and tell me about Allah, I'd be fascinated and I'd want to listen to it. And I try to just enjoy it for what it is. It's a person who cares about something and I care about them and we can be on that journey together. But then it finished up and she was like, I'm gonna go back to bed because like I don't slept like five hours and this day is fucking crazy. This is bizarre how we are not going to Mexico. And I was like, yeah, it is bizarre. So I got in my car and then I was like, I'm gonna call my dad. Because I actually had a missed call from my sister where she called me and texted me and said, hey, dad's here. He wants to talk to you. So he was doing that thing where he walked to my sister's house to call me. So I call my sister. And the interesting thing about that call is like, I had told my mom that I forgot my green card. And then so I explained, yeah, I forgot my green card. We're postponed. I I rebooked the ticket. I'm flying tomorrow. And I made it okay. Like I made it seem like one of these things where like, it's a mistake, but I'm still high functioning and I just high functioning fixed it. And we're actually getting money back because now I'm going to fly coach and it's all good. Like, it's not a big deal. And they're like, what? You're going to drive three hours there and three hours back in one day. And I'm like, I don't actually mind because I love driving my truck and I get to listen to music and it's just, there's no time pressure. Like driving when there's time pressure is annoying, but when you just get to drive, and it's the open road, and it's California, and it's hot out, and the windows are down, and the podcast is blaring, and you weave in and out of the podcast with a Kenny song here and there, and it's just, it's just a good time. And God damn it, they picked my favorite Kenny song. I listened to fucking seven seasons of Dissect, Last Song Standing, and the last song standing was the right one, Mad City from Good Kid Mad City. And they're talking about the song, and it's such an such a climax after seven seven hours of wait, oh shit waiting for them to pick a song where they actually pick a song, the song, the last song in all these matchups, seven hours of song matchups, and they pick the right one. And I listen to the song over and over, and then I go back to their analysis and listen to more of their analysis, and then I go back to the song. And every time I listen to the song, the hairs stand up on my arms because it's such a good song. Mad City is the best Kendrick Lamar song, and it is so good. Like, it is probably, in a way, I think, like, the shitty basic bitch in me wants to say that the best song of the decade, like, the 2010s was, like, um, Sicko Mode by Drake and Travis Scott. But because it just has so many beat switches and so much heavy production and so many iconic phrases... You know, you take a sandy bar and you're out like a light. <laughs> this is turning into the whitest episode of my podcast ever. But here's what I was going to say. I was talking to my dad. And my dad's like, you know, not sober or sober or whatever. And we we never talk about that. No one ever talks about that. No one ever acknowledged. Everyone is just like, yeah, we don't call him after 6 p.m. 
but lately he's been okay. And no one ever says why out loud because it's Swedish and it's so subdued. And it's just layers of ice covering anything. And then they ask me like, oh, so you're going to fly tomorrow and Dan is going to fly today? And I'm like, nah, Uncle Dan is going to fly tomorrow too because he wasn't feeling well. Hey, Alexa, turn the fridge off. You know what that means? That means, oh, I set it up so good. I can tell my Alexa to turn the fridge off and then it turns off and then there's a fail safe where after two hours it turns back on automatically. So now I hit the two hour mark and the fridge turned back on automatically. I got, I love smart plugs and having your home, whole home set up in a smart fucking way that's smarter than you. Nothing better. So I talked to my dad and I'm telling him like, yeah, Uncle Dan's actually going to fly to Mexico too tomorrow. He booked, rebooked his ticket too. And, um, and I'm like, yeah, he wasn't feeling well. My, my dad's like, he wasn't feeling well. Like what? And I'm like, yeah, he just wasn't feeling well. And then we just do the Swedish thing where like, I don't tell him nothing and he doesn't ask. And he literally doesn't, like he doesn't, it's not like we are communicating without words. We're not communicating. Like he does not know. He is willfully just going to not know because he's going to not ask and he's just going to... You know, everyone has a problem and no one is aware of anyone else's problem because you just hide everything in shame. And then one day it just breaks and then you never have friends anymore because you couldn't hide it anymore. You couldn't keep the secret in. So you had to just not spend any time with any people because you can't, <clears throat> you cannot speak without letting the secret out. And the secret is so shameful that you choose a life of the saddest loneliness in the whole world. So yeah, I talked to my dad for a second and it was real superficial and it was fine. And it made everything seem like it's good and it is good. And I got life figured out and I'm sober and I'm, I got my green card and I'm going to go to Mexico tomorrow and it's all good. And I got enough money in the bank and I got friends and it's all going to be totally fine. That's what I'm pretending like. Because I'm still in a state of pre-catastrophe. I'm in a state of pre-loneliness. I'm still in my pre-loneliness era. I'm still pretty fucking lonely though, but, but yeah, at least I have coworkers. At least I have coworkers and one person listening to my podcast, you know? Oh, God. What's going to be lonelier than when no one is listening anymore and I keep doing it? Episode 749, you know? 749, no one's been listening for 300 episodes. And it's just me. I haven't left my house for years. Ugh. That's where we're going. And maybe then I'll pick up this Bible that she gave me today. So next sparkling water here. Blue Monkey Sparkling Watermelon Juice Drink. I, did, I don't think I said that right. Sparkling Watermelon Juice Drink. 100%. Yeah. There's a bunch of vitamins in here. 80 calories. 
can we please, can this be caffeine-free so I can actually drink it? Yeah, I can't find anything about caffeine on it, so I'm just going to assume it's not caffeine. It's cool. The brand is called Blue Monkey. I've never seen this before. I went to a fancy grocery store, and there you go. Ooh, it's sparkling watermelon juice with a little bit of lemon juice in there. Jesus. It's like Blue Monkey is such a weird name that an American wouldn't give it because this is like French. Juice de melon de e petillante. Yeah, I don't know. It's imported. Oh, yeah. It's French in the sense that it's from fucking British Columbia. It's fucking Canadian. I wonder if Drake has ever had a blue monkey. So, yeah. Anyway, then I hung up with, I hung up the phone on my dad and I got, and I was just driving and, and I got a little bit of that Portuguese feeling again where I was like, you know, maybe I can just look at what's in front of me and be in this moment and there's no time pressure and I don't have anything I have to do or anywhere I have to be. I just have to eventually end up in North San Juan where my fucking green card is. And then I'm like, maybe I'll record a podcast today then. I was going to do it in Mexico, but now I don't have time. I can't fly on a Friday, land on a Friday, and have an episode ready for a Saturday. It's not realistic. So now I'm recording this fucking thing now, and I'm flying tomorrow, and when you... I don't know. So you know what I did, though? With my Portuguese feeling. I just like was driving through Sacramento and I did this thing where I like, there's this thing I've heard of. It's called Sutterfort. It's, it's like a, there is no culture in Sacramento. There are, there's only one art gallery, one museum, very, very big metropolitan city, political capital of California, millions of people, no culture, just low one-story buildings with low people in them. Just like really people trudging around in the mud. But Joan Didion is from Sacramento, and secretly in my heart, I got a lot of love for Sacramento. So so I'm like, let's just go to this fucking fort that I've never been to that's supposedly very... I just imagine... People hate it because it's, it's, it's named after a guy who fucking killed all the Native Americans. And it's weird because it's small and shitty, and next to it, there's like a Native American museum. So it's like, feels really pointed. So I, I find parking, and I put some money in the parking meter, and I park, and I, I'm just walking around. And I haven't showered, but it's like, all right. And I'm feeling a little bit like... There's something weird. There's a weird connection between this Portuguese feeling and like being single and wanting to find a woman to like marry. Where like there was something about the Portuguese feeling in in Napa where like all those fucking cyclist women came out. You know, all those um Lulu lemon Lulu lemon camel toes and stuff and then like suddenly I'm in Sacramento and I I just like have the same feeling. And then I, or do I? Yeah. And so there's some lady and, and she looks kind of nice. And I'm like, 
I'm so like unshowered and my hair looks crazy and but I just feel like if you're if you're like the if I'm the person I want to be, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. I don't care that I'm wearing sweatpants and stuff. I'll just like talk to this lady. And then I'm like, shit, she's homeless and she's crazy. And then I walk away from her and then I realize she was on her phone and she had like one AirPod in. So, you know, okay. You miss every shot you don't take. Um, and I'm just walking around and it's like this fort. And the fort, a little bit, is actually reminding me of the Malmo fort. Because it's just like a fucking wall. It's just like a wall and you walk around the corner and there's just more wall. And you can't get into it. And that's what the Malmo fort is like too, except totally different. So then I, I, before I get to the fort, I just see the tiny little building off to the side and it says like Native American Museum. And so I just like go in there and I had this like, I don't know, I had a weird feeling because I'm, I'm feeling this like weird Greek drama. I'm cursed. My uncle isn't doing good. I'm not going to be doing good when I'm in that age and my dad isn't doing good. And no one in my, I'm from a long bloodline of people who just aren't doing good. So I am just cursed to live a bad life. And so I'll just like walk around sadly until my life falls apart. So I walk into this thing and I feel really sensitive and sad. And then I walk in and the, and there's these two girls and they, they look kind of like hipsters, but they greet me and, and, and I go up and I have to pay and, and she's like, it's five dollars. And I'm like, not sure if, if that's including tax. Cause I kind of want to give her cash because it's a small transaction. I always feel silly with, so I'm like, I, but I don't want to give her cash if it's $5 plus tax because then she's going to give me a bunch of coins back. And there's nothing worse in this entire life than wearing sweatpants with sweatpant pockets and putting coins in a sweatpant pocket. And I don't want to put them in there. But also there's no tip jar because we're in a Native American museum. And if she's about to give me like 62 cents back in coins and I just be like looking for a tip jar... And I just like put them and tell her to keep them or whatever. There's this like crazy white guilt fear that she's going to be like, oh, you think this is like fucking um, reparations here? You think you're going to pay 62 cents in reparations and make this all good? Because like, get the fuck out of here. Get the fuck out of here, you piece of shit. So I ask her if it's $5 including tax or like plus tax. And they laugh at me so much. Such a hearty laugh. And I just wish that I was on a more like jovial level at that moment so where I could laugh too. And then it could be a hilarious conversation. We could like talk and stuff and I could flirt with the girl. But that's not what happens. Instead, they just laugh and I'm just looking sad. And it turns into this like very mean moment where they're just laughing at me. <laughs> and I just look sad. And then they laugh and I just look even sadder. And then they're like, ooh. Get, get a little bit like, okay, so here's your map. And you start over there. And so I'm like sadly walking over. And then I read it all. And it's like a, such a dark, I don't know. I could talk about it for a while, honestly. But this episode is already getting kind of long. But I am I go to a lot of museums. And there's this thing about museum where 
they are never what they seem to be. Because what they seem, at first reading, it is a thing where one person has taken objects and put them out under a glass or behind glass or some, they put them out for other people to look at as if you want to look at them. But the point of a museum is never that you want to look at this shit because who gives a shit? I could look at this shit on the internet. Like, I don't care. The point of a museum is all, always this other thing of like this performance of if the museum is nice, that is an act of communicating that we as a society place value upon this. That is what every museum is. And it's like, in China, you have these incredible palatial museums dedicated to the, you know, the long march and like all these different communist struggles and the entire communist origin story and the founding of a, the founding of a nation and, and all these different mythos ideas. And then I'm in this Native American museum, which is existing not metaphorically, but quite literally in the shadow of Sutter Fort, which is named after the guy who killed all the Indians. And in the shadow of the fort of the guy who killed all the Indians, there's a tiny building and it's brown and dusty and old. And you go in there and it's dark and you pay $5 and you fail to flirt with the girl who takes your $5 because you're so morose. You just, your soul is just so morose. And then you walk around and everything is just so drab and sad in there. And it's really not about how you want to look at the objects behind the glass. It is about noticing how we as a society, and this is a very royal we we're talking about here. This is like we as in all of earth does not give a shit about this stuff. That's how you feel looking at it. And then like, you know, I look at it all and I just get really sad because it's all so shitty. And I read the little plaques and it's about the last guy and his whole family died and he was the last one. And he fucking came out of the woodwork and this is the first photo of him after he came out and he's wearing a fucking... He's wearing fucking pelts. And he looks sad. And he was sad, is what the plaque says. Because his whole family had just died. And what did it say? It was something like... Oh, yeah. When the last guy, like one corner of the exhibit is dedicated to this one guy who was the last guy of his people. And he came out and just wandered into the city of Sacramento when his last people died and he was alone because he just couldn't make it on his own, right? And when they first saw him, they took a picture of him. And in the photo, his hair is short. And the plaque reads, he singed his hair because that's what they do when they're mourning. When you mourn, you show that you're mourning by burning your own hair until it's short. And then when your hair is short, you just sit there sad. And then, you know, when you're fucking thriving, your hair's long. But it takes a while to not be mourning, so it takes a while for your hair to grow out. And you look at his short hair and his sad face, and, and there's something, like, majestic to, the, like, the regalia of the Native Americans and some of the imagery and their long hair and everything. And then when they have short hair, they look way more Asian and they look way more like the bristle-headed, like just East Asian. They just look like a Chinese guy with a, one of those shitty software engineer shitty haircuts, you know? 
like some guy who really didn't figure out anything about fashion. And like, it's just so sad. And it really fucking got to me. And I was just like, I'm so sad about my shit. And he's so sad about his shit. And humanity just doesn't have shit figured out. And everything's so fucking weird and shitty. And I look at the whole exhibit and there's all these tools and and it's a small exhibit. And then I get to the end and I just want to buy a fridge magnet because I always buy a fridge magnet. That's the thing. I, I'm collecting fridge magnets. Like wherever I go, I buy a fridge magnet and then I want my fridge. It's the only place where I, it's the only place in the home where I don't ma- mind clutter. It's magnets on a fridge, like colorful clutter on the fridge. It's the one place. Because we like tidy houses with not a bunch of fucking knickknacks. But the fridge magnet, I've decided... Some people do stickers on the back of their car or whatever. Stickers on the side of a Winnebago. Like Some people pick other things where it's okay for it to look crowded. <sighs> Excuse me. Did a burp. I've, de- I've decided that the fridge magnet is my one place where I'm okay with clutter. So I buy... a. Native American woman fridge magnet. And as I'm buying it from one of the girls at the register, at the entrance, I feel bad because I feel like she's going to be like, oh, so you go to the Native American fucking museum and you buy a $3 fridge magnet and you're going to virtue signal with your fucking fridge magnet. I just feel so bad that I just expect more negativity and I just expect her to shit on me. And instead she's like, oh yeah, that one's really nice. I have that one too. That's what she says. And I'm like, oh yeah, it is really nice. It is really nice. And then right as I'm about to leave, the younger girl, because the older girl had the other, had the, said the thing about the magnet. The younger girl, who looks kind of like a hipster, but when you look closer, she looks kind of Asian. And when you look even closer, you're like, oh, both of these people are Native American. The younger girl is like, did you see the world's smallest basket? Did you have a chance to see the world's smallest basket? And I look at her and I'm like, no. And she's like, can I show you? And in a dream, I say yes. And she takes me back to where I've been. And I've already looked at everything I thought. But there was a series of baskets that get increasingly smaller. And then I point to them and I say, wow, yeah, that is a small basket. And then she goes, it's not even those. They get even smaller. And we're talking about baskets that are like the size of a pinhead. And then she describes how the baskets are used in this ritual where you're like, a spirit sucker. And she's like, yeah, my grandmother was a spirit sucker. And these are made by this like famous basket making lady. And the way they do it, it's like you have an ailment and then the spirit sucker sucks the ailment out of you and then blows it into the basket. And the smallness of the basket is, it's small to, to send a signal to the illness of how silly it is and how small you are, illness, and we make fun of you with the smallness of this basket. You are so little, and this illness is so negligible that we can fit you into this tiny basket, and the smaller the basket, the more you're making fun of the illness. And I'm like fascinated by all of this because that's such a beautiful poetic idea. And I try to like talk to her, and I'm like, wow, so it's like anthropomorphized, or like you imagine that the illness has feelings, and it's like, and she doesn't really resonate with that. But then she like talks more about her her grandmother who was a fucking illness sucker 
was friends with the famous lady who made the baskets and she shows me the smallest basket and then she says the even smaller world smallest basket is not even here there there's some that are even smaller and the smallest ones are like under a lens because they're so small that you can only see them in a microscope but there's apparently ones that are even smaller and I look at it and it's just so beautiful and I look at the girl and she's like kind of pretty and she has bangs and she has like one platinum blonde streak she looks like really drab and she looks like a member of a defeated people but she looks 10 percent like a hipster and then she's kind of flirting with me and she's asking me a lot of questions and where i'm from and stuff and and so and she talks about where her people are from from like northwest and she's a member of the pomo tribe and and I tell her that I'm Swedish, and I actually tell her this thing from Swedish folklore, which isn't true. I made it up. But I made it up not on the spot. I made it up in advance. <laughs> Where, like, I tell her that in Swedish traditional folk belief, it, there's this thing of how when there's a problem, you, like, grow a cucumber on the problem, and then you imagine that the problem is sucked into the cucumber and then it's in the cucumber so then you like throw the cucumber in the river because she literally said that after you suck the illness out of the body you spit it you you put it in the basket and then you throw the basket in the river and like in my stupid 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 novel that no one should read there is the swedish folk belief thing that i don't remember if it's real or not i think it's actually real now that i'm thinking about it i think it's real where in the book, in my novel, I took the Swedish folk belief thing and I applied it to this Chinese problem of like a garbage curse where at one point the Swede helps the Chinese guy by growing cucumbers all over his garbage curse and then afterwards he instructs the Chinese guy on throwing the cucumbers in the river and making sure that the skin doesn't break. And I'm telling the girl this thing of how it's similar to the baskets and she's like, damn. And I'm like, damn. And we have this moment where I'm like, God damn it. Like I should have asked her out or something, you know? But I was wearing sweatpants and I hadn't showered and like my, like the front of my sweatpants are all covered in like crusted up fast food. <laughs> uh, so good. <laughs> and we look at each other and like she's wearing this like terrible sort of like park ranger like an oversized park ranger uniform that's like a off brown with like a native american tribe patch on it and it's so ill-fitting and we're both like not pretty but i should have asked her out and basically what i'm telling you is i'm in love with this woman and i might maybe maybe i'll go back there Maybe I'll go back there and just give her a piece of paper and say, like, hey, you know, you probably have a boyfriend and you probably think I'm, like, gross and everything, but, like, I w I'd love to buy you dinner or whatever. Oh, I'm so depressed in this moment. But it's weird. It's weird because I'm so, like, sad and upset. And then I think my sadness and upsetting about my uncle and feeling like I'm cursed and everything, I think that there's just some lust addiction thing where, like, really... It's an it's an it's a, like a really bad idea. Like I can't. I'm not. You know, I'm not about to fucking shack up with some park ranger and who lives an hour and a half away from where I live. You know, like that's not it. That's not the solution to my problem. 
the solution to my problem is meditation, but I have this fiction, like I have this delusion that like what I need is to find this woman who will numb my emotions, my bad feelings. So maybe this girl whose name I did not even ask, <clears throat> she told me so many things about her. And she told me about, then she got really, it got like really sad at the end. Like just a very, um, the type of sad that you would expect, like a very predictable sad, where she was like, yeah, so my people in the on the Pomo land. And she, actually what she said is, her dad is Pomo, Native American, but her mom is Swedish. And I'm like, damn, huh? And she's like, yeah. And it's like, fuck, God damn, she would, like, do you want me to ask you out? Like, should I ask you out? But that's not what I say. But like, okay, so then she, instead of me asking her out, she looks at me and she goes, yeah, and on my dad's side, like, the Pomo, there are all these stripes of people, different peoples living under the Pomo banner. And they live in the different valleys. And my my dad, his mom and his dad were like from different banners of the Pomo tribes. And, and they got together and they had my dad. And, and then all of those people, all of our ancestors, like there's almost none of us left. And, and they were all massacred by this guy called Kelsey, Andrew Kelsey. And it's called the, um, I wrote it down, Bloody Island Massacre. And like, you know, we just lost everything and they forcibly removed us to this reservation. And like my family lives on the reservation and, and you know, there was never any reckoning with any of it. And the guy Kelsey who murdered everyone, he, Kelseyville is still named after him, you know, like the big town up in Pomo country, it's still called Kelseyville, named after the guy who murdered everyone. And it's like, yeah, you know, it's just like everyone's dead. And she just explained it in this like very immediate and matter of fact and predictable and human and truly sad way. And it was just sad. It was just sad. And then, yeah, we talked a bunch and we walked around and she showed me all these different objects and it was like a dream, you know, it was like a dream, but it wasn't a dream. It was reality. And then Native American bangs girl, we said goodbye and I, and I left and, um, and then, um, I don't know. I wonder if, she, cause Part of me is defensive and wanting to be like, I'm from Sweden, just so you know, like, I'm not a descendant of any of these people who killed all your people. But then there's also, we also had this other conversation of how, like, even her Swedish family, like, they could just come from Sweden and drop all their heritage and just assimilate and just be doctors and lawyers immediately. And it was all good, all Gucci, all immediately. Whereas, like, on her dad's side, she's the first one to go to college. So it's like, it's all bad, you know, like, you're not off the hook just because you're a fucking Swedish asshole. Like, you're not not an asshole just because you're a Swedish asshole. And yeah, that's true. And for what it's worth, I feel bad about everything. Like, for what it's worth, I've never been happy, you know? Like, I just want everyone to know that I'm probably guilty of a lot of things, but at least I've never been happy.
So there's that, you know? So then I did this thing of walking across the path, up the hill, around the corner, around the corner, walking around Sutter Fort, trying to get into Sutter Fort. And I pay another $5 to now get to look at Sutter Fort, where they have another exhibition. And I'm like, before walking in there, I'm like, is the Sutter Fort going to be full of, because I just had this like profoundly informative experience where actual Native Americans explained stuff to me? Am I now going to have actual white people explain actual white people stuff? Like, am I now going to have white people dressed up in like colonial regalia, like old West regalia? People who are like romantic about the era when they killed everyone? Like, is this going to be the biggest caricature of two experiences like two contrasting experiences where first you go to the native american museum staffed in present day only by native americans and then you go to southern fort staffed only by white people like is this a joke like is this a a jew and a fucking bigot walks into a bar joke How is America such a caricature? Because then I walk in, I pay five bucks, and there's a fucking white lady, and she's dressed up in colonial gear, and she's all happy, and she's all like, tell me if I can explain anything, and she's showing me the tools of, you know, how great everything was in the Old West, and I'm like, I'm good, still coasting off of the afterglow of the incredible sadness of the Bloody Island Massacre, not yet ready to forget about all of that and just be like playing civil war with the whites. You know, I just need a minute before I can play civil war with the whites. Like America is so fucking stressful. Like, can I not just be sad on my own? Does it have to be like this? Can I just have an artist date on my own and just chill the fuck out? Does everything have to be like this? Like, God damn it, you guys chill the fuck out with like the, the fucking war crimes. The war crimes that have like valence in present day. Can you chill out with that shit? So then I wander around and I'm trying to get away from all these white people that want to explain shit to me. And they're all like blacksmiths trying to like romanticize how they made tools back in the day in the era when they killed everyone. Okay, now I'm sounding super, super white guilty. But anyway, so then I go in a corner of the fucking Sutter Fort Um which was, I look on my map and it was what used to be the jail and they have a TV there and you can sit down and you watch a little movie about Southern Fort and I watched the whole thing and it's so funny because the thing is a video where white people sit next to Native Americans and they all talk about how the Southern Fort is this symbol of something horrible and how there was never any, how it was always staffed by people who just sort of treated as this, like, it's actually crazy because the the fort was only a fort for like five years in like the 1830s. And it was very small and it was very shitty. And then like in the 1880s, a group of white supremacists called, like a really long time ago, a group of white supremacists called the Native Sons of fucking California or the Native Sons of the Golden State or some shit, bought the fort and made it into what it is and made it a symbol, made it this like big, shiny, newly renovated, fresh paint job symbol of white supremacy. And it's like the 
absolute first feeling I had walking into the Native American Museum of how these things, it, you're not there to look at the objects. No one gives a shit about the piece of leather and like the bent piece of metal in front of you that's like 200 years old. No one gives a shit about the actual object. The whole thing is just a performance of society showing what we give a shit about and what we are going to pour money into. That's all this is. So, sorry, I had to take a delicious sip of Blue Monkey Sparkling Watermelon Juice Drink. Very hard to, it's totally a name made up by a French guy. Very hard to place the emphasis correctly in Blue Monkey Sparkling Watermelon Juice Drink. Very, very hard to place the emphasis correctly. Very, very easy to drink. So my absolute first feeling of how this is all just a performance to show what we give a shit about that feeling is what the film is about, and that is the only thing that stays true. And it's so fucking weird because you watch this film talking about how they have a plan to change the fort so that it's no, so that it stops being such a symbol of white supremacy, and so that it stops being like this horrible thing where there's no reckoning of a past. And they talk about how they haven't done it yet. In the film, they talk about how they haven't fixed it yet. And then you turn around and you look out the window and, yeah, you haven't because there's like 20 white guy volunteers on the premises who are all like super into the myth of California. And then the film is like about the myth of all of this and how like the thing was made up th – th this is really interesting, actually. The whole thing about um, history – like, it's what you in China would call historical nihilism. Historical nihilism is like the, the, the incorrect rewriting of history. It's just what they call it when they get mad about old history. The, 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 the thing in America that's so interesting is like present-day Southerners will be mad when you want to take down a – a um, symbol of a like confederate general because really it's just their history they, this is the argument it's really just their history and it's just something where they came together under a thing and they, it doesn't have to be a symbol of something bad it's just that we came together and we were this is the these, these are our, our ancestors and we just want to like honor our own ancestors but the thing is that Whenever you poke at that even a little bit, you realize that even in its original form, it was like a myth. It was like 150 years ago, they made up a lie about something and made a statue. Like the statue can be like really old. It's like a, it's almost like a really old lie. Because like they, the native sons of fucking the Golden State or whatever in the 1880s bought the Sutter Fort and made it this nice thing and was like, yeah, this is, and pretended like this is the fort where we, where we defended and won the war against the Native Americans. But the thing is that the fort had no role in anything. The thing was a lie to begin with. Like it was never, no part of it was true. Not even like the offensive lie. Like not even the offensive truth is true. Because it was just a thing where a bunch of racists after the fact built a fort to say that, like, this is our fort for how, like, God gave us, God gave this land to us, and we got to take it in this, like, glorious battle. Yeah, anyway, very, very fucking weird experience. 
very weird experience. And like, yeah, I don't know. And everything in that Native American museum was so sad. Because like one corner of the museum, there was like a picture of like, it was like an illustrate, a mock-up of what, how they're going to fund a bigger uh, experience center, like a community center, Native American community center exhibition thing. That's going to be not sad and dimly lit with broken light bulbs and shit, like the current one. And so I asked her about it, and she was like, yeah, it's like they're maybe seven years from now they're going to do a thing. And I was asking more questions, and the more I asked, the more sad it got because it was more clear, more and more clear that there is no answer to like, I don't, they don't know if these objects are going to be moved there or not because the thing is probably not even going to happen. Because it's like, this thing of how we treat people like shit is not in the past. It's in the present. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's a that's a two-and-a-half-hour episode, and I haven't even got... That's a two-and-a-half-hour episode about my Mexico trip, and I, 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 I didn't go yet. <laughs> oh, and I think I actually have to stop now because I have to drive all the way back to San Francisco now. And the sun is setting, and this is... This trip is about to be a little bit less Portuguese and a little bit more of a slog because I literally haven't slept for two days. And now my uncle was probably like in a weird edible stupor all day. So he probably woke up at like 4 p.m. So now he doesn't want to go to bed until super late. This is about to be horrible. Like I'm about to be so sleep deprived. This is about to be very, very, very difficult. But it's going to be fine. But thank you guys for listening. I love you guys. I'm sorry that I'm such a white guilt virtue signaling piece of shit liberal and that I just sound like I'm trying to impress some imaginary audience of liberal women. But I know that the only person listening is Tristan and she's not political. She's not political and she's just here because she's trying to stay stay sober and she's trying to just get that, you know, Get that thing expunged. <laughs> Tristan, just stay listening to the pod and you're going to stay sober, okay? Just call me if, you, if you're if you thinking about drinking. Just, just call Uncle Joe, Kim, okay? I love you. I do. I love you for listening and I love you for staying sober. Wish me luck, everyone. I'm going to need it. <laughs>